The following is a conversation with Steve Keen, a brilliant economist that criticizes much of modern economics and proposes new theories and models that integrate some ideas and ditch others from very thinkers, from Karl Marx to John Maynard Keynes to Hyman Minsky. In fact, a lot of our conversation is about Karl Marx and Marxian economics. He has been a scholar of Karl Marx's work for many years, so this was a fascinating exploration. He has written several books I recommend, including The New Economics and Manifesto and Debunking Economics. And now, a quick few-second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. We got weights and biases for machine learning, Skiff for email, Indeed for hiring, NetSuite for efficiency, and Insight Tracker for longevity. Choose wisely, my friends. And now, onto the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make these things interesting, but if you skip them, if you must, please still check out the sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by a new sponsor, Weights and Biases, the company that helps machine learning teams build better models faster. They help you debug, compare models, reproduce models that other people put together. Now that includes architectures, hyperparameters, all version through. So git commits, you can uh, play around and model and visualize model weights. You can look at GPU usage. You can look at uh, data sets, the predictions on, on uh, the evaluation sets. So all of those different aspects involved in building a real world or large scale or an effective machine learning model you could do all of that together with a team and they can version it like you would a piece of code. But they're also huge supporters of the machine learning research community. Their tools are free to use for personal use and their Teams feature is available for free to academic researchers. Companies like OpenAI, NVIDIA, iRobot use it. They do it for the, all the machine learning model building that they do. Uh, Weights and Bias, it gives you a better way to stay organized and be more productive. Join over 200,000 machine learning engineers and data scientists when you sign up at lexfriedman.com slash WNB. This show is also brought to you by Skiff, a private end-to-end encrypted email. First thing to say is that it's actually really difficult to build a compelling, accessible almost enjoyable graphic user interface for email. I mean, so much of email is about the efficiency of reading, of organizing, of filtering through emails, the good ones, the bad ones, of replying, all that kind of stuff. So Skiff masters this. They do an incredible job of building an intuitive, easy to use, clear interface. Now, all of that is on top of an end-to-end encrypted email, so nobody can uh, track your email not even Skiff, so it's just between you and the recipient. And they have a bunch of different features. First of all, fast and effective search. You can do custom domains for your email. You can easily migrate from other email services like Gmail, ProtonMail, and Outlook. You could do all of this if you sign up at skiff.com slash lex. That's S-K-I-F-F dot com slash lex. 
This show is also brought to you by Indeed, a hiring website. I've used them as part of many hiring efforts I've done for the teams I've led in the past. They have tools like Indeed Instant Match, giving you quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately. There are very few things in life, and I will not shut up about this, as important as the people you surround yourself with. That includes your friends, your family, and the people you work with. And some of the coolest, some of the most difficult things you do in life is at work whatever that is, hopefully it's something that you're really passionate about. So that means you're spending a huge amount of hours at work. You're doing something that's truly challenging. You're doing something that's hopefully truly fulfilling. And the people around you will define your growth, will define how successful you are, will define how much meaning you get from that thing. So hiring is really, really important. So you have to use the best tools for the job and indeed is one of the greatest out there. They have a special offer for listeners, only available for a limited time. Check it out at indeed.com slash Lex. This show is brought to you by NetSuite. NetSuite allows you to manage financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and many more business-related details all in one place. Running a company, which is something that I hope to do in the future, I'm talking about a large company, like one that has HR and a financial person, who I should really probably get very soon. So if you're running a company like that, all of the mess of that is not fun. And it's so critical to the success of a company. Like the thing I love doing is the design, the engineering, the building, the idea stage, the idea development, all that kind of stuff. But in order to make an actual business run, especially if you're doing e-commerce and inventory management, you have to have the best tools for the job. NetSuite does just that makes all of those messy, painful things easy for you to do. You can go to netsuite.com slash Lex to access their one-of-a-kind financing program. This show is also brought to you by Inside Tracker, a service I use to track biological data. They have a bunch of plans, most of which include blood tests that give you a lot of information that you can use to make decisions about your health. They have algorithms sexy machine learning algorithms that analyze your blood data, DNA data, and fitness tracker data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside you and to offer you science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. I love this idea. This is the future. It's obvious that the decisions, lifestyle decisions, health decisions, medical decisions that you make about your body should be based on data from your body and not just instantaneous snapshots, but longitudinal data, so across time. Instead, most of medicine, most health and lifestyle advice is given based on population data and very minimal investigation of what actually is going on inside your body and what is actually best for you. So Inside Tracker is a giant leap into the direction of using data to give you personalized advice. Go to insidetracker.com slash Lex, and for a limited time, you get special savings for being a listener of this very podcast. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's Steve Keen. Let's start with a big question. What is economics? Or maybe, 
what is or should be the goal of economics? Well, it should be to understand how human civilization comes about and how it can be maintained. Uh, and that's not what it's been at all. Uh, so we have a, a discipline which has the right name and the wrong soul. What is the soul of economics? The well, soul of economics really is to explain how do we manage to build a civilization that elevates us so far above the energy and, and consumption and knowledge levels of the base environment of the earth. Because if you think about, and this is actually working from a work I've learned from Tim Garrett, who's one of my research colleagues who's an atmospheric physicist. And his idea is that we have these, we exploit these high-grade energy sources from the sun itself to coal, nuclear, et cetera, et cetera, which means we can maintain a level of human civilization well above what we'd have if we were just still running around with rocks and stones and spears. So it's that elevation above the base level of the planet, which is human civilization. And if we didn't have this energy we were exploiting, if we didn't use the environment to elevate ourselves above what's possible in the background, then you and I wouldn't be talking into microphones. You know, yeah. We might be doing drum beats and stuff like this, but we wouldn't be having the sort of conversation we have. So to explain how that came about, that was the economics should be doing, and it's not. So this is the greatest thing that the Earth has ever created, is what you're saying, this conversation? Yeah, we're the most elaborate yeah. construction on the planet. And like that's not what we've done. We've denigrated the planet itself. We don't have respect for the fact that life itself is an incredible creation. And I, I my ultimate, if I had to see how humanity is going to survive what we're putting ourselves through, then it would we'd have to come out of it as a species which sees its role as preserving and respecting life. I like how you took my silly, incredible statement and uh, made it into a uh, uh, a serious one about how amazing life is. Life is incredible, and we humans don't respect it enough. We trash it, and and that's what economics, I think, has played a huge role in that. So I actually regard my discipline, I would never call it a profession, let alone a science. Uh, my discipline has probably helped bring about the termination potential, the, the feasible termination of human civilization. Strong words. Okay, let's return to the basics <laughs> of economics. So what is the soul and the practice of economics what what should what should be the goal of it because you're speaking very poetically but we'll also speak pragmatically mm -hmm. about the, the tools of economics the variables of economics yeah. the metrics the goals the models practically speaking what are the goals of economics well in terms of the tools we use we should be using the tools that engineers use frankly and that sounds ridiculously simple because you would expect that economists are using up-to-date techniques that are common in other sciences where you're, you're dealing with similar ideas of stocks and flows and interactions between the environment and a system and so on. And that's fundamentally systems engineering. And that's what we should be using as the tools of economics. Now, if you look at what economists actually do, uh, the sophisticated stuff involves difference equations. And like difference equations, you know, if you've done enough mathematics as you have, you know difference equations are, are useful for like individual level processes. If you're talking about a, a, an automaton, it'll go from state t to t plus one, t plus two, and so on. But not when you're talking at the aggregate level. There you use differential equations to measure it all. Economists have been using difference equations. So there's like a, a book, I think it's by Sargent and one other, are called Advanced Methods in Economics Using Python, two-volume set. It's about close to 2,000 pages, 
and four of those pages are on differential equations. The rest is all difference equations. So they're using entirely the wrong mathematics to start with. For people listening, what is difference equations versus differential Okay, equations? a difference equation is, is like you can do in a spreadsheet. You'll have, this is the value for 1990, this is the value for 1991, 92, 93, 94. So you have, you have discrete jumps in time. Uh, whereas the differential equation says there's a process moving through time and you will have a, a rate of change of, the, of, a, of a variable is a function of the state of itself and other variables and rates of change of those variables. And that is what you use when you're doing an aggregate model. So if you're modeling water, for example, or fluid dynamics, you have a set of differential equations describing the entire body of fluid moving through time. You don't try to model the discrete motion of each molecule of H2O. So at the aggregate level, you use differential equations for processes that occur through time. And that's economics. It occurs through time. You should be using that particular technology. But some economists do learn differential equations, but they don't learn stability analysis. So they simply assume equilibrium is stable and they work in equilibrium terms all the time. And that uh, it, it is the, the, the technical level. It's, it's an incredibly complicated uh, way of modeling the world using entirely the wrong tools. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that because it's unclear what the right tools are. Yeah. Maybe it's more clear to you, but... I've got to make it clear to an audience. Well, so this is a very complicated world. It's a complex world. Mm. You talk about there uh, some of the most complex systems on Earth are the human mind, mm. the economy, and the biosphere. Yep. Uh, so we'll 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 go. You know, I'm we'll go to that place. I'm I'm uh, fascinated by complex systems. Mm. I'm humbled by them, even at their simplest level of like cellular automata. Um, I'm not sure what the right tools are to understand that, especially when part uh, part of the complex system is a, like a hierarchy of other complex systems. Yep. So you said the economy is a fascinating complex system, but it's made up of human minds, and those are interesting. Those are those are interesting, perhaps impossible to model, uh, but we can try, and we can try to figure out how to approximate them, and maybe that's the challenge of economics. Okay, we'll keep returning to the basics. Mm. Let us try to learn something from history. I also see as part of economics is us trying to figure out stuff, and there's a few smart folks that write books throughout human history, and sometimes they name schools of economics after them. So let, let us take a stroll through history. Okay. Can you describe at a high level what are the different schools of economics, perhaps ones that are interesting to you, perhaps ones that the difference between which reveals something useful or insightful for our conversation. Okay. So, you know, you could, neoclassical, post-Keynesian, Austrian, I like the biophysical uh, economics and so on, other heterodox economic schools that you find interesting. Okay. I actually find interesting a school which went extinct about 250 years ago. Mm -hmm. That's where I'd like to start from. And they're called the physiocrats. And the name itself implies where their knowledge came from because if you go back far enough in history, we didn't we didn't do autopsies. But when you started doing autopsies, they found wires, they found tubes, et cetera, et cetera. And they started seeing the body as a circulation system. And they applied the same sort of logic to the economy. 
And they came out of an agricultural economy, which was France, and they saw that the wealth came effectively from the sun. So they saw all wealth comes from, they said the soil, but what they really mean is sun, the soil absorbs the energy of the sun. One seed plants, a thousand flea seeds come back. There is no surplus. Uh, we are simply mining what we can find out of the natural economy. That's where we should have stayed and, and developed from that forward. Uh, we then went through the classical school of economics, which comes out of Adam Smith. And Smith, uh, coming from Scotland, looked at what the physiocrats said, and what the physiocrats argued was that agriculture is the source of all wealth, and the manufacturing sector is sterile. That's literally the term they use to describe the manufacturing sector. What does sterile mean? Sterile means you don't you don't extract value. You simply change the shape of value. So the, the value comes from the soil. Yeah, it comes from the soil. That's the free gift of nature. That's literally the phrase they used. And we then distribute the free gift of nature around, and we need carriages, which was the manufacturing term they used at the time, uh, as well as uh, wheat. Mm -hmm. So we, to make the carriages, we take what's been taken from the soil and we convert it to a different form, but there is no value added in manufacturing. Yeah. So Smith looked at that and said, well, I'm from Scotland, yeah? and we've got these Easy now. <laughs> industries, you know, and we make stuff and it's machinery. And he said, no, it's not land that gives us the source of value, it's labor. Yeah. Now, that led to the classical school of thought, and that said that all value comes from labor, uh, that value is, uh, is objective, so it's the amount of effort you put in, that the price two things will exchange for reflects the relative effort that's involved in the manufacturing. So this computer takes two hours to make, and this bottle takes two minutes to make, then there's, this is worth 60 times as much as that. Okay. They didn't talk about um, marginal cost. It was absolute cost, effectively. They didn't talk about utility as a subjective thing. They ridiculed sub subjective utility theory. That led to Marx. And Marx is a, a, probably the most brilliant mind in the history of economics. The only other competitor I'd see is Schumpeter, possibly Keynes. But in my terms of ranking of intellects, it would be Marx, Schumpeter, Keynes in terms of the outstanding capacities to think. But Marx then turned that classical school, which was pro-capitalism and anti-feudal, into a critique of capitalism, mm -hmm. which led to the neoclassical school coming along as a defense of capitalism. But they defended it using the ideas of the subjective theory of value, so that value does not reflect effort, it's the satisfaction individuals get from different objects that determines their value, marginal utility. It's the marginal cost that determines how much they sell for. Capitalism equilibrates marginal cost and marginal utility. And the concepts of equilibrium and marginal this and marginal that became the neoclassical school. And that's still the dominant school now 150 years later. So that's the one that everybody learns. And when you first learn economics, if you don't have the critical background that I managed to acquire, uh, that's what you think is economics, mm -hmm. the marginal utility equilibrium uh, oriented analysis of mainstream economics. And for example, they ignore money. Okay? People think economists, you must be an expert on money because you're an economist. Well, in fact, economists learn literally in the first few weeks at university that money is irrelevant. They say money illusion. Mm -hmm. So they, they, they represent people's uh, tastes using what they call indifference curves. And they're like isoquants on a, on a weather map. If you look at an isoquant, it shows you all the points of the same pressure. So you can be you, know, you can be here or you can be in Denver and the air pressure can be the same if you're in the same weather unit. So you just draw a cell. 
that links together. Well, they do the same thing with utility and say lots of bananas and very few coconuts can give you the same utility as lots of coconuts and very few bananas. And you draw a basically a like a hyperbola running down and linking the two. And they'll say, well, that's that's your utility. That describes your tastes. And then we have your income. And there's given your income, you can buy that many um, bananas completely or that many coconuts or a straight line combination of the two. Mm-hmm. And then if we double the price, nominal price of coconuts and double the nominal price of bananas and double your income, what happens? And the correct answer is, oh, nothing, sir. You know, you stay at the same point of tangency between what your budget is and which particular utility curve gives you the maximum satisfaction. So that gets ingrained into them. And they think anybody who worries about money suffers from money illusion. You know, you, you are therefore uh, ignorant of the deep insights of economics if you think money actually matters. So you have an entire theory of economics, which presumes we exchange through barter. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'll, I'll swap you that Microsoft Surface for... Uh, actually, I'll take two of those for one of these. You know, we do this bartering type arrangement. In fact, that only works if money plays no creative role in the economy. And that's where you'll find reading Schumpeter, uh, the insight that's the school of thought that I come from that says money is essential. Money actually adds to demand. And I'll, I'll talk. we'll talk about that later on. So that's the neoclassical school that ends up being subjective theory of value and, uh, non-monetary, as though, as though everything happens in barter, and focusing on equilibrium, as though everything happens in equilibrium. Or if you get disturbed from equilibrium, you return back to it again. And that mindset describes capitalism. Its most interesting feature is that it reaches equilibrium. Now, what planet are we on to believe that? Because if you look at the real world, the real uh, uh, exciting world of capitalism in which we, we live, change is by far the most obvious characteristic of it. There's no equilibrium. There's no equilibrium. It's unstable. And as a mathematician, it's easy to, you, you work with stability analysis. You know, you work out what the, uh, the Jacobian is. You work out your Lyapunov exponents in a complex system. You're used to the idea that equilibrium is unstable. But economists get schooled into believing that everything happens in equilibrium, and they don't learn stability analysis. So all that stuff is missing. So onto the schools of thought, um, the treating the economy as an equilibrium system, which was what the class, neoclassical school did, is what Keynes disturbed. Mm-hmm. And he really disturbed it by talking about, fu- fundamentally, that uncertainty determines our decisions about the future. So when we consume, you know, you know if you like Pfizer or whatever you, a particular drink you want to have, you know the current situation. But to invest, you must be making guesses about the future. But you don't know the future. So what do you do? You extrapolate what you currently know. And as you said, this is a terrible basis on which to plan for the future. But this is the only thing you can do where there is no possibility of solid calculation. So investment is therefore subject to uncertainty. And therefore, you will get volatility out of of investment. You will get... uh, Fads, of course, booms and slumps coming out of that because people extrapolate forward the current conditions. And that's the normal state of a capitalist economy. And Schumpeter argued that that's what gives us its creativity as well. The fact that you um, can perceive a potential demand, but you don't, first of all, you don't know whether that demand's going to work. Secondly, you don't know who your competitor's going to be, whether somebody's going to be ahead of you or behind. If there's a fad, you'll overinvest, okay? Um, 
all this stuff is the real nature of capitalism. And that's what we should be trying to capture, the dynamic non-equilibrium monetary violence and creativity of capitalism. That's what we should be analyzing. And the post-Keynesian school has gone in that orientation. Um, they've been, in my opinion, inhibited by learning their mathematics from neoclassical economists, so they don't have enough of the technology of complex systems. There's only a really tiny handful of people working in complex systems analysis in post-Keynesian economics, but that is, to me, the most interesting area. So their their tools may be lacking, but they fundamentally accept the instability of that's things. That's right, that's right. And so that's what makes them interesting. So let me, let me try to summarize what you said, and then you say how stupid I am. Okay, so then there was the uh, physiocrats mm -hmm. that thought value came from the land. Yep. Then there's Adam Smith who said, nah, value comes from human labor. Uh, that, was, that was the classical school. Mm -hmm. And then neoclassical is uh, value comes from like bananas and coconuts, the prefer human preferences. Yep. Like human happiness, how, how happy, how happy a banana makes you, mm -hmm. and then uh, the Keynesian and the post-Keynesian were like, yeah, well, you can't, you can't, you can never. The moment you try to put value to a banana and a coconut, you're already working in the past. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's always going to be chaos and stability, and then you just you're you're fishing in uncertain waters and that's we have to embrace that and come up with tools that model that well uh and also joseph schompeter what school would you put him under is he a keynesian or is he uh austrian economics or is, he's an austrian the austrians deny okay so that's he, the intriguing he, he's from austria but he's he, not an austrian economist there are elements of the austrian school of thought which are worthwhile what, what is Austrian economics in this beautiful whirlwind picture that you painted? Okay, Austrian economics grew out of the out of the rebellion against the classical school. So you had three intellects who mainly led the growth of the neoclassical school back in the 1870s. It was William Jevons from England, uh, Menger, who's from Austria, and Walras from France. And uh, Walras tried to work out a, a set of equations to describe a multi-product multi, uh, economy where there's numerous producers and numerous consumers, everybody's both a producer and a consumer, and you try to work out a vector of prices that will give you equilibrium in all markets in instantaneously. And that's his equilibrium orientation. Jevons is also one about equilibrium, but he worked more at the aggregate level. So there's a supply curve and a demand curve, and that's what Marshall ultimately codified. Menger was pretty much saying that, well, yes, there might be an equilibrium, but you're going to get disturbed from it all the time. You'll be above or below the equilibrium. And what came out of the Austrian school was an acceptance of that sort of vision that the market should reach equilibrium, but then said, well, you'll get disturbed away from the equilibrium. And it's that's what gives you the vitality of capitalism, because an entrepreneur will see an arbitrage advantage and try to close that gap. And that will give you innovation over time. And Schumpeter went beyond that and saw the role of money and said that entrepreneur, an entrepreneur is somebody with a great idea and no money. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So to become a capitalist, you've got to get money. And therefore, you've got to approach the finance sector to get the money. And the finance sector creates money and also creates a debt for the entrepreneur. And so you get this financial engine turning up as well. 
uh, and you will get movements away from equilibrium out of that. You won't necessarily head back towards the equilibrium. So Schumpeter has a, a rich a vision of capitalism in which money plays an essential role, in which you will uh, be disturbed from equilibrium all the time. And that is really, I think, a much closer vision of actual capitalism than anything by even Aust- even the, the, you know, the Austri- leading Austrians, uh, you know, Hayek, uh, et cetera, et cetera. They, they, and certainly Rombard, who I, I find totally like reading a cardboard cutout version of, uh, of, the, wealth of, of the wealth of nations. It's, uh, I find his worth trivial. Um, but Schumpeter was rich, but with the same foundations as the Austrians. But because he talked about the importance of money, that took him away from the Austrian vision, which is very much based on a hard money idea of capitalism. Uh, Schumpeter said you needed the capacity of the financial sector to create money to empower entrepreneurs. And that's a very important vision. So Schumpeter's argument Mm. is the deviation from equilibrium, that's where all the fun happens. That's where all the magic happens. That's the magic of capitalism. And like the Austrians, because they focus on the deviation from equilibrium are better than neoclassicals, but they still have this belief in the, you know, you'll reach equilibrium ultimately or you'll head back towards it. Uh, Whereas they, they they don't have an explanation of capitalism that gives you cycles apart from having the wrong rate of interest. Okay, so there's no role for an accumulation of debt over time. So what Schumpeter gave us was a, a vision of the creativity of capitalism being driven by entrepreneurs who are funded by money creation by the finance sector. And that's fundamentally the world in which we live. Uh, uh, so there's also kids these days uh, are all into modern monetary theory. What's yeah. that about? Okay. Modern monetary theory is accounting. Mm-hmm. I want to summarize it bluntly. It's simply saying, let's do the accounting because what money is, is a creature of double entry bookkeeping. Okay. What's double entry bookkeeping? Banks, this was invented back in the 1500s in Italy. Uh, I've forgotten the particular merchant who did it based on some Arabic ideas as well. But the thing is, if you want to keep track of your uh, financial flows, then you divide what you, uh, all the financial claims on you, you divide into claims you have on somebody else, which are your assets, claims somebody else has on you, which are your liabilities, and the gap between your two, the two is your equity. So you record every transaction twice on one row. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for example, if you and I uh, do a financial transfer, uh, you have a bank account, I have a bank account, uh, your bank account will go down, mine goes up, okay? And that's, uh, the sum of the operation is zero. Okay. But on the other hand, if I go to a bank and borrow money, then my account goes up. They put money in my deposit account. The bank's assets go up. Okay. And there's still the same sum applies. Assets minus liabilities minus equity equals zero. Now, that's simply saying money is an accounting, a creature of accounting. It's not a creature of a commodity. So if you think about how Austrians think about money and how gold bugs think about money and Bitcoin enthusiasts, if there are any left, think about money. Uh, what they see is money as an object, okay? And uh, you, you and I can both have more gold if we're both willing to go to this, you know, a, mine, a, a, a mine somewhere and dig a few holes and get a few specks of gold out. So there's no competition or no interaction between you and me if money is gold. And they think money should be an object, a commodity. But money fundamentally is not a commodity. It's a, it's a claim on somebody else. That's money's essence. So when you do it, you must use double entry bookkeeping to do it. And then when you do, you find all the answers that come out of thinking as money as a commodity are wrong. 
So, for example, and I've got Elon on this one. So I want to get this through to Elon because I saw him making a comment about this a few weeks ago on Twitter. He said that it's wrong for the government. Effectively, it seems wrong for the government to always be in deficit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, when you look at it and say, well, how is money created? How does money come about when it's not a commodity like gold, which you dig up out of the ground, when it's actually social relations between people that create money? Well, money is the they're fundamentally the liabilities of the banking sector. When you, If we make a transfer between us, your deposit account goes down, my deposit account goes up. Those are exchanges on the liability side of the banking, of the, of the banking sector. But if we have a transaction with a bank, uh, then if the bank lends us money, its assets loans go up, its deposits go up, again, that same balance. So you've got to look and say money, therefore, is fundamentally the liabilities of the banking sector. So how do you create, create additional liabilities? You must have an operation which occurs both on the liability side and the asset side of the banking sector. So if you and I make a new transaction, no money is created. Money is, existing money is redistributed. But if you go to a bank and take out a bank loan, then money is created by the bank loan. So the liabilities of the banking sector rise, the assets rise, they're balanced, but more liabilities means, or the banking sector means more money. Okay? So that's, what, that, that's how private banks create money. And that's what I first started working on when I became an academic about well, 35 years ago, the actual dynamics of private money creation. But the government has the same sort of story. If the government runs a deficit, it spends more money on the individuals in the economy than it taxes them which means their bank accounts increase. So a government deficit creates money for the private sector. Okay? So that's where money creation occurs from the government. So it's, it's, it puts money in people's, it puts more money into people's bank accounts by spending, by welfare payments, than it takes out by taxation. So that's creating new money. And then on the other side on the bank, the money turns up in the reserve accounts of the banks, which are basically the private banks' bank accounts at the central bank. So rather than the asset of private money creation being loans, the asset of government money creation is reserves. Okay? Right. Money creation. Money creation. Is a good thing. So you mentioned a bunch of stuff like private money mm. creation with the liabilities in the banks mm. and then the, how the government is doing, the reserves blah, 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 at the end of the day, there's a bunch of printers that are printing money. Uh, What is money, and then you also said something interesting, which is social relations between humans is what creates money. Mm. I think my mind was blown several times over the past (laughs) minute. Um, So it's it's difficult for me to reconstruct the pieces of my mind back together. But um, basic question, is money creation a good thing or a bad thing? Money creation is a good thing because money creation is what allows commerce to happen. Isn't there a conservation of... No, there isn't. I had, had arguments with physicists over this, and it took me a long time to answer it. They thought the sum total of all money is zero. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's the sum t- total of all assets and liabilities is zero. So if you imagine um, your assets minus your liabilities as your equity, and your asset is somebody else's liability, and your liability is somebody else's asset. When we're talking about financial assets, and this is another mind-blowing thing that I've just recently solved for myself. Mm-hmm. So the sum total of all financial assets and liabilities is zero. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to interrupt you rudely. What are assets? 
what are liabilities? Assets of your claims on somebody else. So uh, specific. Give me, uh, give, me uh, what, give me an example of an asset. Okay. Uh, do you have a mortgage for this house? No, I'm okay. renting. You're renting. There you go. Well, if you had a mortgage, that'd be your your liability. That would be my liability. Okay. The mortgage with the bank's asset. Right. Okay. If you add the two together, you get zero. Okay. So that's zero. That's zero. The money is the liability side of the banking sector. Okay. Okay. Assets are the 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 assets on the other side can be either created by the banking sector, which is where you get bank loans, or created by the government where you get reserves. But money is the liabilities. Money is if you think about protons and antiprotons in that sense, money is like the antiproton. It's the negative, the liability. But wait, wait. The liability is the negative. Yeah. Well, how's that money? I thought money is the positive. What is a liability for the banking sector is an asset for you and me. So and asset includes money. Yeah, yeah. Okay. If you have a bank account, like you got, you'd have a bank account and you'd have some cash. Yeah. Okay? okay, those are your assets. But the bank account is a liability of the banking sector mm -hmm. and the cash is a liability of the Federal Reserve. Okay, so what, what's money? Well, money, <laughs> is, money, money is the promise of a third party that we both accept to close our transaction. And this is- and That's a bank? That's liability. a bank. Yeah, this is this is one of the most important works I've ever read. Is a work by a wonderful, now unfortunately deceased, tiny, tiny Italian economist called yeah. Augusto Graziani, oh, and he's the most that. wonderful personality. Augusto, it, I, met, I met him on a few occasions. Is one of the few human beings who can speak in perfectly formed paragraphs. Mm -hmm. Okay, superbly eloquent. And what he did was write a paper called the the Monetary Theory of Production. You can find it, uh, downloaded on the web. It's, uh, it's pretty much open source now. Uh, and what he said is, what distinguishes a monetary economy from a barter economy? So he said, in a, in a in a barter economy, what we do is, you know, I'll give you two of these for one of those. Okay. Yeah. Okay, barter. Just we're working at a relative price. There are two of us involved, and there are two commodities. So with money, money is a triangular transaction. Okay. There is one commodity. I want to buy that can of drink off you, mm -hmm. uh, two people, and the price that's worked out ends up being in a transfer from the promises to pay the bank that the buyer has to the promises to pay the bank that the seller has. So if I, we, we, so what you have is a, a monetary transaction in a capitalist economy involves three agents, the buyer, the seller, and the bank. So the bank always has to be part of it. Well, the bank has to be part of it. What, when, when I hand you the money, you accept that as uh, you've now got, rather than it's the bank promising to pay me something, it's now the bank promising to pay you something. And we exchange the promises of banks, and that's fundamentally money. So money is fundamentally a threesome and everybody gets fucked. Okay. Is that a good way to put it? No. It leaves I'm just it leaves kidding. Like, like, oh, now no, I can use French in this conversation. That's good. That's not French. That's... Um, that's a different language. I'll explain oh, it to you yeah. one day. Uh, but, um, <laughs> you Australians would never understand. <laughs> okay. Uh, if I can return to you, we'll jump around if it's okay. Oh, that's fine. Uh, so you mentioned Karl Marx mm -hmm. as um, one of the great intellects, economic thinkers ever. Yeah. Yeah. He's, num he's He might be number one. You study him quite a bit. You disagree with him quite a bit. Yep. But you still think he's a powerful a thinker. powerful mind, yeah. a powerful mind. So, first of all, let's let's just explore the human. Um, uh, 
why do you say so? What's interesting in that mind, in the uh, way he saw the world? What are the insights that you find brilliant? The Marx once described his major work as towards a critical uh, examination of everything existing. Okay. <laughs> so he's a modest bastard. Yeah. Uh, so he, he he wanted to understand and criticize everything. Yeah. And uh, even he 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 wasn't trained directly by Hegel, but he was his teachers were Hegelian philosophers. And what uh, Hegel developed was a concept called dialectics. And dialectics is a philosophy of change. And uh, when most people hear the word dialectics, they come up with this unpronounceable trio of words called thesis, antithesis, synthesis. I can barely get the words out myself. Yep. And that actually is not Hegel at all. That's another German philosopher Kant? called Ficht. Oh, Ficht. I thought it was Kant. No, Ficht. Well, I'm not sure. You could be... I mix them up. All Germans look okay. the same to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but if you look, this beautiful book called Marx and Contradiction, you want to find a great explanation for Marx's philosophy. I've forgotten the author. I think it's Wild, W-I-L-D-E, Marx and Contradiction. And he points out the actual origins of Marx's philosophy. Well, I didn't know that when I first read Marx. So I became exposed to Marx uh, when I was a student at Sydney University and we'd had a strike at the university over the teaching of philosophy. And uh, what happened was the philosophy department had a lot of radical philosophers in it and a conservative chief philosopher. And uh, the the radicals wanted to have a course on what they called feminist aspects of philosophical, sorry, philosophical aspects of feminist thought. Mm -hmm. And the staff voted in favor of it. This is back in the days when university departments were democratic. The professor opposed it. He got it blocked at a high level. The staff leapfrogged over that, and then finally the vice-chancellor blocked it. So that led to a strike over the teaching of philosophy at Sydney University, which at one stage over pretty over half the students were on strike. Okay? Wow. Uh, economics began out of that. Over the, teaching of a philosophy yes. of feminism. Yes. God, it's good to that's be That's such a different life to what we're living now. You know, that, that's the academic milieu in which I developed all my ideas and and, and I had become a critic. I've gone from being a believer of mainstream economics when I was a first-year student to disbelieving it halfway through first year. Mm-hmm. Okay, And I then spent a long time trying to change it, getting nowhere. And then this philosophy strike happened and we took it on in economics and we formed what's called the political, political economy movement and had a successful strike. We actually uh, managed to pressure the university into establishing a department of political economy at Sydney University, as well as the uh, Department of Economics. What was the foundational ideas? Were you resistant to the whole censorship of why aren't we having, why can't you have a philosophy of anything kind of course? Well, yeah, it was much more libertarian in the genuine sense of the word period of time uh, at the end, of the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, then the word libertarian has been corrupted since then. But it really was about free thought. And you went to university to learn. It was about education. I remember having a fight with my father once where dad was angry about the marks I was getting for some of my courses. And he said, if you don't get a decent result, you won't get a a decent job. And I said, I'm not here to get a job. I'm here to get an education. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, the thing is, ultimately, it's been a pretty good job for me as well. This is in Sydney, by the way. And Sydney in summer is absolutely gorgeous. And what do a bunch of lefties decide to do during summer but read Karl Marx? Yeah, okay. on the beach or uh, actually inside the uh, uh, the room of the philosophy department at the University of Sydney in the main quadrangle. Mm-hmm. There's sandstone all around us, and we 
bunch of about 20 or 30 of us reading our way through Marx. Cap uh, capital, like what, which uh, There's capital? Volume one, of, volume one Capital. And I remember walking off to that meeting with one of my friends uh, who's a law, law student. And we. this was a period of a huge construction boom in Sydney. So the whole skyline, which we could see from the campus, was full of what they call kangaroo cranes, which were an Australian invention, that are cranes that can be you know, leapfrogged over each other to build a, a skyscraper. So here you are reading Karl Marx, looking yeah. at the at the mechanisms of capitalism. And I looked at those mechanisms and I knew Marx argued that labor was the only source of value. Yeah. And he said, machinery doesn't add value. So the cranes are, are worthless. I'm looking at these cranes and thinking, I want a very good explanation by Marx as to why these cranes don't add value. So reading through the first seven chapters of Capital, what you found was Marx applying this dialectic. And like the Fichtean stuff is bullshit. That is not how Marx thought at all. I, I was reading, trying to find the thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and it's not there at all in any of Marx's works. And I've read everything he's ever written on economics from 1844 to 1894 when his last books were published. There's not one word of mention of that. What he does talk about is foreground and background and tension. And his idea of a, of a dialectic is that there is uh, a unity will exist in society and that unity can be an individual, it can be a commodity, anything at all. The, the, the unity will be understood by that society one particular aspect will be focused upon. So if you think about the human being in capitalism, the focus on the human being as an object is their capacity to work. Mm. You're a worker, okay? That gets put in the foreground. The fact that you're human and you want to play a guitar and go surfing and make love and all the other things that humans do is pushed into the background. Mm -hmm. so there's a tension between the two of those. And that can transform that unity over time. And that's a beautiful dynamic vision of change. So dialectics is a philosophy of change. So synthesis, antithesis is uh, what does every idea have a counter argument? Yeah. There's a positive and negative and you bring them together somehow. And then Marx has this foreground, foreground background, background the foreground is all what we think of as economics and background is all the lovemaking that we do as humans. That sort of thing. And and why is, what's, why is there a tension? Well, it's what, because you, you imagine, if you imagine the unity, like if, if you take a human in a, any previous, like if you go back to Cro-Magnon days when we're you know living in caves and, yep. and we've got to go hunting and cook food and stuff like that, but there's no social hierarchy as we've become used to. Yeah. So you don't get labored as a worker or a capitalist. You're just a human in that situation. Then you'll, you've got more of an integrated view of who you are. And I think that's one of the appeals of a, of a tribal, a genuine tribal culture, that you get treated for the whole of who you are. You've certainly categorized you're male, you're female, you're young, you're old, you're a hunter, you're a, you're a tool maker, et cetera, et cetera. But you're treated as more an integrated object. When you get put in a complex society like a capitalist society, then one side of you is emphasized and the others are de-emphasized. So is it fair to say that the background is like our basic fundamental humanity and the foreground is the machine of capitalism? Effectively, and when you look at it in terms of a, of a human. But what Marx did is apply this to a commodity. So he said, what is the essential unity in a capitalist economy? And the essential unity is a commodity. Okay, that's essential, the essential unit. The essential unity. What's unity? Unity is an object in society. Okay. Okay. So he he started from the point of view of trying to understand what how exchange occurs. Uh -huh. How do we set prices? And his starting vision was to say that a commodity is a unity in a capitalist economy. The part of the unity 
that we focus upon is the exchange value. A capitalist produces a commodity not because of its qualitative characteristics, but because it be sold for a profit. So the foreground aspect of a commodity is its exchange value. The background aspect of it, it won't succeed as a commodity unless it has a use value. So the, the background is the utility thing. Yeah, so if you made something which didn't work, okay, yeah, then it has. You might be able to sell it, but it has no utility. That can't. You can't make that into a commodity. A broken thing can't be sold. Does that have the subjective? Yeah, it has to have the subjective side. So people enjoy as well it. as the objective. So the objective is what capitalists worry about. I'll give you my favorite counterexample of that. I was in. Uh, I took a bunch of Australian journalists to China way back in the period when the Gang of Four was was being on trial, and we did a tour of the uh, Forbidden City in. Uh, Beijing, and at that stage, all the artifacts of the royal family, the em- emperor, were actually in the building still. And we walked past one of them, and it was this gold, solid gold bar about this long, mm-hmm. shaped like a fist, turned over like this. And on this side, there were rubies, emeralds, diamonds. You'd never seen gemstones. I mean, gems that big. Okay? And one of the journalists asked me what I thought it was, and I said, oh, it's obvious, Jane, it's a back scratcher. Ha, ha, ha. Mm-hmm. I walked away. She caught up with me about 20 minutes later. Said, I asked one of the guides, it is a back scratcher. Wow. So here's a back scratcher for the emperor made of solid gold with diamonds and rubies and emeralds during the scratching. Yeah. Now, that's, that's a commodity in a feudal society. Okay? The cost doesn't matter. You want the most elaborate, beautiful thing because you're the emperor. So that you, in, that, in a feudal society, the commodity, what's focused upon is the utility and the cost of production when you when you're the emperor is immaterial. Capitalism reverses that. Mm-hmm. So the commodity in a capitalist economy is a plastic two dollar scratcher you can get from Kmart or Target. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the the use value is necessary, but irrelevant to forming the price. Now that was a completely different vision of exchange in capitalism to what I found in the neoclassical theory, because that says it's the marginal utility and the marginal cost of everything that determines the exchange ratio. And the crazy thing about that is not so much the marginal utility, but the argument in, in the neoclassical theory is that the price ratio, the price will, um, when there's an exchange going on, there's two-person, two-commodity exchange of, com- of two commodities for, between two people, uh, they will... The, the price will change until such time as the ratio of the marginal utilities is equal to the ratio of the marginal costs. Right. That's supposed to be the equilibrium. Now, Marx says that's bullshit. That's a previous society where you exchange stuff that you happen to have for stuff somebody else happened to have without any real production mechanism being involved. And he said that's like when you when you have an eight, two ancient tribe or two tribes meeting for the very first time, and one tribe can make something the other tribe can't make, and they will therefore, the price they were willing to pay will reflect how unique this other object is that the, this one tribe can make and the other can't. So, for example, the story of Manhattan being sold for 40 glass beads, mm-hmm. it's actually 40 glass trading beads, I believe it is a true story, but the thing is the Indians couldn't make glass beads. So they valued the glass beads of the island of Manhattan, mm-hmm. okay, which is a utility-based comparison. And what Marx said, that's the very initial contact. Over time, even if you don't know the technology, over time you, you start to realise how much work goes involved to making what they're selling you versus what you're selling to them. And you start making stuff specifically for sale. 
So, you know, Elon's not losing personal utility each time a, a Model 3 goes out the door. There's no, he might he get utility out of the fact that he's created that vehicle, that concept, and manufactures it and so on, but he's not losing utility each time a Model T Ford goes out the door, you know, for, for going back for the ancient, ancient commodity there. So the utility plays no role in setting price in Marx's model, whereas it's essential in the neoclassical model. What's the difference between utility and marginal utility? What does the word marginal mean and why is it such a problem? It turns marginal utility, well, the utility itself has different meanings in the two schools of thought. If you take the classical school of thought, which when Marx comes from, utility is effectively objective. So the utility of a chair is that you can sit in it, okay? Not how comfortable it makes you feel. Yeah. Okay, now if you think about the utility of the chairs we're both sitting in, they're identical from a classical point of view, we're both sitting. Okay? Yep. But from a neoclassical point of view, it's how comfortable it makes you feel. And that mm -hmm. depends upon your subjective feelings of comfort. You might be far more comfortable in the identical chair that I'm sitting in than I am. Yeah. And therefore the comparison is difficult. And therefore working out a ratio involves you've got a decline in your each time you give away a chair in exchange for a iPhone you have a fall in your utility, okay? but uh, and, and then, therefore, you want a higher return because you're losing more utility each time. The, the more chairs you give away, the less utility you're getting from chairs. So there's a decline in your utility. That's your, your marginal utility. So it's including your subjective valuation in setting the price. And what Marx pointed out is this is a, a caricature of actual change in a capitalist economy. Because we have in, in a capitalist economy, huge factories turning out huge quantities specifically for sale. They've got no utility to the um, seller unless they're sold. Mm -hmm. okay? So it's a, it's, a, it's a very different vision of where, how price is set. And Marx used that to explain where profit comes from, but he made a mistake. And his argument was that talking about a, a worker, uh, as, as now your unity, this is foreground, background, tension thing. The foreground is that you hire a worker uh, for their cost of production, and their cost of production is a subsistence wage, okay? Um, the utility to the buyer is the fact that they can work in a factory. Now, it might take six hours, let's say, to make the means of subsistence, and that's the exchange value, and that's what the capitalist pays as a wage to the worker but they can work in the factory for 12 hours. That's the utility. 12 minus six is six surplus of value hours, and that's where profit comes from. And that was Marx's argument. And I thought it was brilliant, but it also applied to machinery. Right, okay, let's, uh, it's, it's, let's it's go into, on that. Hold yeah. on a second. No, no, deep, deep, deep is good. Just wanted to find uh, terms. Don't take that statement out of context, yeah. the internet, please. Okay, <laughs> uh, you said buyer, seller, worker, mm. in a factory, who's the seller, who's the buyer? Well, if you look, why, uh, why is the worker the buyer? Well, the worker's the commodity in this case. Because when, it, when it, if you're going to make stuff in a factory, you've got to hire workers. Yes. Okay. And what Marx is saying, the buyer in that situation is a capitalist. So what does the buyer pay? He says he pays the exchange value. That's uh, back to the commodity thing. That just because that's the starting point. He said the essential unity in a capitalist economy is the commodity. A commodity has two characteristics: exchange value and use value. Okay, exchange value of a commodity in a capitalist economy will be its cost of production. The use value 
is what you do with it, okay, once you've purchased it. But labor is a commodity? In this case, when you when a worker is being hired for a job, yes. So yeah. the worker's labor has an exchange value and a use value That's as it. well? yeah. Use value. Use value of a worker's labor. Exchange Which, value. Let me think about that. So mm -hmm. if that... So the hours they put in is the use value. Interesting. So what uh, what does the worker want in this? What are the motivations? Are we not considering the worker in this context as a human being? With well, you wants come, and you needs? come, and that's actually that's that's the next layer. You, what what Marx gives is like a a layered cake, starting from a foundation of saying straight commodity exchange, and then saying, well, you're treating a worker as a commodity. Now, a commodity is something, you know, like this. Okay, that has, so far as I'm aware, no soul. Okay. Yeah. Not going to be complaining if I turn it upside down. It'll yep. fall over, but, it, you know. Uh, so that's, there's no soul there, whereas a human is both a commodity and a non-commodity. Yeah. And therefore, there'll be a tension in the person. I'm being treated as a commodity here. I'm being paid just enough to stay alive. You know, I've got a wife and kids back at home. Yeah. So that that is another layer of of, of thinking in Marx, and, the, and on that layer, he then says, "Well, workers will therefore demand more than their value." So that's when you get like political. Marx. You get political, and you get money coming above that, and so on. But the basic idea starts from the commodity is the fundamental unity in capitalism. The important commodity in Marx's thinking was the worker, because that's where he said profit came from. Yeah. Okay. And then that explains the motivation of the capitalist and that ultimately leads to the labor theory of value and Marx's arguments about how capitalism will come to an end. Okay. 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 So first of all, what is the labor theory of value? And actually before that, yeah. what is value? Is that, um, this is like me asking what's happiness. Uh, is there something interesting to say about trying to define value? You vary. And this is a, a huge problem in economics is arguments over what does value mean and the neoclassicals came down and said it's subjective it's value is whatever you get out of it but it's, it's your personal evaluation of something your personal feelings so they've got that very subjective idea of value whereas the marxists and the, being inherited as the classical school talk in terms of objective value so the value is the number of hours it takes to make something or the effort. The value is value is the effort that goes into making something in the yeah. classical school. Well, that's just like one measure of objective. Where do you fall? Huh? Where, where do you fall? I fall. I, I, I fall on versus uh, subjective versus objective spectrum. I think you value. have to, you have to have the capacity to, to to move between one and the other so in the a cake, structured cake way. Model of value. Yeah. Well, my my base model is the objective. Okay. Yeah. But above that, as soon as you start talking, you did about the worker, for example. Uh, then you get involved in the subjectivity because a worker will be angry and justifiably so about being treated as a commodity because mm -hmm. I'm not a, I'm not a commodity I'm a human being okay yeah. and that's where Marx saw political organization coming from so and that's subjective now and then when you get to money itself Marx actually said well what's the pro what's the value of money now, if you use an objective theory of value, you would say, well, the cost of money, the value of money is its cost of production. What's the cost of producing a dollar? It's about two cents. So he said it can't be. The value of money cannot be its cost of production. Or the must value, I think if we remember the phrase properly, or must is value here as it must mean the effectively 
uncertain expectations or subjective valuation. Uncertain expectation or subjective valuation. Okay, but yeah. he's okay with that? He was okay with that because he could move between different levels because he, he had a structured foundation of this dialectical vision of, of, of foreground, background tension, uh, commodity having use value, exchange value, and a gap between the two. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about uh, machines, when you're buying stuff for production, and then at the next level, he could look at workers, worker organization, and say that's driven by being treated as a, a commodity when you're a non-commodity. So the basic uh, labor theory of value mm. that is ascribed to Karl Marx is that value at the base layer fundamentally comes from the labor you put into something. Yeah, and you say, well, there's some deep truth there, except he misses one fundamental point, which is machines can also bring value to the world. Yep. He was saying they don't. He, he, he was, uh, the only thing that matters is human labor, not, not yeah. labor. How do you measure what's the role of the, uh, whatever value machines bring to the okay. world? This is, this is another intriguing history because Marx, when he first started, had what you can call a, a an exclusivist explanation for why labor created value. What's that? And that was to say that uh, there's the labor is the only commodity with both what he called commodity and commodity power. So you have labor and labor power. Labor is the, and I get fuzzy about this, I haven't read it for something like 30 years, but labor has both commodity and commodity power. The commodity is you can buy labor, which is the means of subsistence. Labor power is the capacity to work inside a factory. There's a difference between the two. Therefore, that difference will give rise to surplus. And there's no other commodity that has this essence of commodity and commodity power. Mm -hmm. So that was his exclusivist argument. In the middle of the 1857, he was um, visited by a guy called Otto Brau in his home in Chelsea. And Otto returned to Marx a copy of of Hegel's phenomenal. I think it's called Phenomenology of Right. I haven't read it, but that's the book. And he, Marx was then at that stage reading through all the classical theorists again. And he was suddenly he read Hegel again. And if you know Hunter S. Thompson, mm-hmm. okay, of course, okay. You could, Who doesn't know Hunter doesn't, S. Thompson? Somebody who hasn't had enough drugs, obviously. Yeah. But Hunter S. Thompson... He comes just, to you in a dream after you take your first... Mescaline or, or whatever. And, you and can, of you course, can, we've all... If you know your drugs well enough, you can tell, okay, he's stoned, okay, he's on cocaine, you know. Well, Mark suddenly, his writing style, in the middle of a book called The Grundrisse, completely changed. He switched from weed to cocaine? He switched from Ricardo to Hegel. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what, in Ricardo, he had this exclusivist argument about labor, and suddenly... Hegel is back talking in terms of dialectics, not actually using a word, but foreground and background and tension. And then he, that's where this use value, exchange value, tension thing came from, is rereading Hegel 13 years after he stopped reading philosophy. Because made in 44, he was reading just the economists. So you're saying Karl Marx is human after all? He's he can, human. He could be influenced. I would love to have a beer with Karl for a wine. For Karl? He's Karl to you? <laughs> He's Mr. Marx to me. Okay. <laughs> Maybe Karl to me, I'm afraid, after all these years. Yeah, yeah, you've, you've had quite a journey together. So that's where, after Hegel, his interpretation of the dialectic comes and, in the form of background, foreground and background. And then on page 267 of the Penguin edition of the Grundrisse, 
Literally, one, your memory. One and a half pages long footnote. It's pretty hard to forget. Because what I, when, I, when I did this, when I first read Marx way, way back when I was, uh, how old was I? 20. Okay. I tried to explain my explanation of Marx's use value, exchange value stuff to my colleagues in this philosophy discussion room at Sydney University during a beautiful summer that we are inside concrete you know, sandstone walls discussing Marx. And I went to say, look, the use value, exchange value argument can be applied to a machine. What's the exchange value of a machine? It's cost of manufacturing it. What's its use value? It's capacity to produce goods for sale. No relation between the two. There'll be a gap. A machine can be a source of profit. Mm -hmm. Now, I said that and I got laughed at. I quite literally laughed at. So when I went back to university 13 years later to do my master's degree, uh, I chose to read through and find in Marx where he first came across this insight. So I, I made a, my first master's thesis failed, by the way, and justifiably so. Okay? I was learning. I, I didn't know the level of um, academic discourse necessary. I had an advisor who didn't understand what I was writing. He got me to write for his um, new Keynesian audience, mm -hmm. and it was a mess, and it got failed. So I got rid of Did him. Did it get failed? Because, like, why do you think? It wasn't it a good thesis. It was, I didn't know the level. It was written for an audience my, my supervisor thought that I should be writing for, mm -hmm. and it was a mess. And so I met another guy, Jeff, Jeff Fishburne, uh, as a lecturer at my, New South Wales University, and Jeff was open-minded. He was not a, a conventional neoclassical thinker, and I realized I was, I'd throw out the half that Bill had got me to do, focus just on Marx, and so I decided to read Marx in chronological sequence from his very first works of economics, which are called the Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts of 1844. Mm -hmm. And he wrote those in a garret in Paris after he'd been expelled from Prussia. Mm -hmm. And so he decided to read uh, the, having been an expert on philosophy and regarded as the towering intellect of, of Hegelian philosophy in, in Prussia, but driven out because he was a radical. He, he ended up uh, writing a, uh, running a newspaper or being writing for a newspaper and he was reporting about the eviction of, of peasants from the forests, taking away their feudal rights. And so this is where his passion for economics and humanity came from. And he was a poet mm. as well. I mean, he wrote love poetry to Jenny von West, Westhalen. That's his first published works were pretty much in poetry. He was a rouseabout. He was, you know, a, a wild character. We'd probably fight, fight like crazy, I imagine, if we met. Uh, oh, over the beers? I'm I'm slightly even though I can be um, I can get involved in an argument like no, nobody's business. No, really. No, really. But I'm a bit more peaceful of personality. Oh, you think Marx is feistier than you? He was feisty, but uh, feisty with he could be arrogant. Like I'm, uh, I've I've got an intellectual arrogance. I've yeah. come to accept that. But there's like a fundamental humility to you. Yeah, I've you're just, saying Marx is like. He has ego that's a hard bit to too big ego. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm guessing. I mean, I'm, I'm never going to meet him. Well, the beard uh, says ego to me. The beard is huge. Yeah, that's 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 huge. <laughs> okay, so th this is interesting. So you went chronologically right through his work, the development of the human being through his works. Yeah, and I was trying to find the point at which he discovered this use value exchange value mm -hmm. idea, and it occurs in a footnote on page 267 to 268 of the Penguin edition of the Gundresa, which. His notes he was taking, literally not meant for publication, literally sitting at a stall inside the British Museum, I think, reading all the classical 
authors in chronological sequence, and then somebody throws Hegel at him, and suddenly he's talking in Hegelian terms. And he suddenly says, is not, because uh, it's whole value issues, what is value? Is it exchange value, use value? How do they relate to each other? That's what he was thinking about. And he said, is not ex- uh, use value, which was left out of the classical school, a fundamental aspect of the commodity? Is there not a tension between the use value and exchange value? Just, just so we're clear, in that context, use value is kind of the subjective thing. Exchange value is the objective yeah. thing. And Marx was found a way to integrate the two. Mm-hmm. But he was focused on uh, labor being the only thing that can generate both the use yeah. value and the exchange value. But, no. If you look at the classical school, they focus on exchange value, objective. Look at the neoclassical, they focus upon use value, subjective, or they call it utility. So Marx, coming from the Ricardian tradition, basically dismissed the role of utility. And then when he reads Hegel, he's suddenly starting to think in terms of unities and exchange value and use value is the unity of the commodity. And he thinks, well, I, I can't ignore use value. So rather than leaving it out completely, which is what Ricardo and Smith does, I've got to somehow bring it in. And this Hegelian insight occurs to him. Mm-hmm. And you, it, it's remarkable. To, I really recommend taking a look at the book, even just to look at that particular page, because what it would have been is shown as a footnote, but it would have been him saying, oh, wow, and he's asterisk, asterisk, is not you know, uh, use value a fundamental aspect of the unity of a commodity? So in the notes, you see the discovery of an idea in the human and mind. it's beautiful. The integration of an yeah. idea. And he actually writes, does this have significance in economics, question mark. And then he probably went home that night and like that that, that idea changed yeah, him. Yeah, it changed him completely. Okay, yeah. And from that point on, his writing was completely different, but he still had this idea from the Ricardian days of saying that labor is the only source of value using an exclusive argument to say there's something unique about labor. Mm-hmm. that explains why it's a source of value. But suddenly this insight occurs to him and he thinks, I can get a positive derivation. I can use use value and exchange value and the fact they're not related to each other as a dialectical tension to explain surplus value. And that's what he does. So he goes from a negative explanation of where value comes from to a positive explanation on that page of the Grandresa. And he then triumphantly uses it to explain why labor is a source of value. You buy it for its exchange value, you use its use value, they're unrelated, the use value will be bigger, that's where profit comes from. Then he does exactly the same thing for machinery, about 30 pages on. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, it ha- also has to be contemplated, which was not done before. This is wrote nice to himself, by the way, so it's, it's written in really in a colloquial style, that the use value of a machine significantly greater than its exchange value. He actually left out the word is. It's used, this is obviously to be a term, it, it'd be a translation into English of the German, I'm sure. I don't know, I haven't, I haven't seen the original notes. I'd love to see them. But uh, he says, he leaves out the word is. It also has to be contemplated that the, exchange, the use value significantly greater than its exchange value, i.e. that the contribution of the machine to production exceeds its depreciation. And that, was an insight which undermined his explanation for revolution. Okay, can, can you say that again? Yeah. The uh, the cost of production exceeds is depreciation. Yeah. is that okay? Can you linger on that? I um... well, it, what Marx argued, and you read this in Capital, and I read this in Capital when I first saw the contradiction in his own thought. He said that no matter how useful a machine is, 
whether it has uh, took 100 hours to make or cost 150 pounds, it cannot, under any circumstances, add more to production than 150 pounds, which, in his old exclusivist logic, he could justify, and which in his, modern, his, his post-1857 argument is bullshit. Can you steel man his case? Can we go to the mind of Marx and thinking, if a machine costs a hundred bucks, it can't be ever more bring more value than a hundred bucks. But to that the world. contradicts his previous logic, because what he said, what he said is, uh, you have a commodity is the essential unity in capitalism. Capitalism focuses upon the exchange value, that pushes the use value into the background and there's a tension between the two, what that means is the exchange value of a commodity sets its price. The use value is independent. He called them incommensurable. He literally used the word incommensurability between exchange value and a use value, Mm -hmm. whereas neoclassicals make them commensurable. So he's saying exchange value and use value are incommensurable. And that normally means that exchange value is objective, like the number of hours it takes to make something. Use value is subjective, how comfortable the chair is, the fact that you can sit in a chair. Uh, So that's incommensurability. But when you apply it in production, the exchange value of something is objective. It's how many hours it takes to make a machine or how many hours it takes to make the means of subsistence for a worker. The use value is also objective. You're making commodities for sale. And the worker does six hours Six hours of work will make them the, the uh, means of subsistence for the worker, but the worker will work a 12-hour day, and the six hours becomes a gap. Now, that's incommensurability between use value and exchange value of labor. But when you look at what he said about no matter how long you know, it takes to make a machine or how many pounds it costs, he's saying they're identical, and that's contradicting his own logic. Well, what's, what's the use value of a machine? The fact that it can produce... Uh, goods for sale, exactly the same as the worker. Now, what I, in my modern reinterpretation of Marx, which brings in my work on energy, I see both labor and machinery as a means to harness energy and produce useful work. And they can both do that. In fact, they, they do it together. It's a collective enterprise. Okay, so, and we'll go to that. So there's no... There's no fundamental difference from an exchange value and use value perspective between a human and a machine. And therefore, they're using the same logic. They can both be a source of surplus, Yeah, which is what Marx contradicted because his explanation for where socialism would come from is that only profit comes from, profit comes only from labor. Over time, we'll add more machinery than labor. That will mean a falling rate of profit and therefore a tendency towards socialism. And what he did in that insight in 1857 is contradict his own idea about what would lead to socialism. And he couldn't cope with it. Okay. What's the difference between Marxian economics and Marxist political ideology? The gap between the two, the overlap, the differences, what... The, the The real foundation of Marx's political philosophy was the economic argument that there would be a tendency for the rate of profit to fall. And that tendency for the rate of profit of fall would lead to capitalists battening down on workers harder, paying them less than the subsistence, uh, a revolt by workers against this, and then you would get socialism on the other side. So his, he, the, what he called the tendency for the rate of profit to fall played a critical role in his explanation for why socialism would have to come about. 
he was saying it would have to come about or is it a good thing for it to come about? Um, so pretty, it pretty, should come about? He had or? a should, but he was trying to say it must. So you, you, if, if you look at Marx and the history of yeah. radical thought, he was preceded by what were called utopian socialists. Saint-Simon, uh, even the Cadbury's company came out of utopian socialist. And they had an idea about a perfect society in the future where people were properly rewarded, were treated as human beings rather than cogs in a machine mm -hmm. and all this sort of stuff. And they said socialism should come about because it's, it treats humans better than capitalism does. Marx said, I can prove that socialism must come about. So he preferred, he had a, a utopian vision of a future society, but he thought he could prove that it had to come about. And the, the, the proof relied critically upon tendency for the rate of profit to fall, and that relied upon labor being the only source of profit. What, what was his utopian view? So this, this idea from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Yeah. Is that the utopian? I think it's utopian in, in the context of our modern world. It, it it says that you, you, you rather than being rewarded, like you know, Jeff Bezos gets enormous fortune, uh, you get what you need, not what you want necessarily. All all needs is fulfilled. It was, it was, it was a vision of utopia where you could be a fisherman in the morning, um, a poet in the afternoon, mm -hmm. and a chef at night. Okay, that's paraphrasing one of his phrases. So he did have a utopian vision of a future society, and he did think human creativity would be much, much greater under socialism than it was under capitalism. He was wrong. Uh, so let's explore in different ways where he was wrong. You're saying there's a fundamental flaw in the logic, mm -hmm. but also if we can link, if we can explore the high-level philosophical concepts of socialism too, like the dreams of a utopia. Yeah. Uh, so what... Uh, First of all, what is socialism? That's another loaded term. What, it is what, a load. Uh, socialism, particularly in America, is a very loaded term. And what Americans call socialist is um, uh, a large amount of provision of services by the state, which is commonplace in Europe. It's still moderately commonplace in my own home country of Australia. Uh, and uh, and that Americans are, will call you know public education socialist. It's a total parody of the word. Uh, strictly speaking, what socialism meant is the public ownership of the means of production, no private ownership of the means of production. What is the means of production? What, Machine what factories, called? factories. So yeah. all the goods that are produced in factories, no, the means of producing the goods is yeah. owned by a centralized entity. Yeah, centrally planned. This is what, it, what actually was done under God's plan under the Soviets. Uh, and even with a collective collective farms as well, you no longer owned your land. The state owned your uh, owned the land. You worked on the land, and this was supposed to be a utopia, right? Now it so didn't turn out to be one. And we'll talk about maybe your ideas of why it didn't turn out to be mm -hmm. one. Uh, so the the fascists did the same. So is fascism also central? fascism, so called national socialism. It's also a, a kind of socialism. So yeah, but I, but there was no. It wasn't pub public ownership. There was public direction. So the state would tell fa factories what to do, but there's still private profit. And a large part of why the Nazis succeeded was the extent to which they managed to co-opt major manufacturers in Germany. Uh, so it, it, it's, you know- it's Direction want... versus ownership. It's yeah. a dictatorial, I mean, that's a very particular implementation. Yeah. So, so you, I... have to, you have to consider the full details of the implementation, but it's basically dictator guided. Yeah. 
Now, if you want to, if you want to take a, owned, if you want to take a, a proper vision, then you have to say it's the ownership of the means of production by the state. Yeah. Okay. Versus the ownership by private, that rules out the Nazi period. They yeah. use the word that again they're bastardizing as much as Americans do, in the opposite direction. Well, what does ownership exactly mean? Well, it, it's <laughs> it, it, it became incredibly complicated, and this is. Um, the, and this is actually the best work on this is done by a recently deceased Hungarian economist called Janos Kornai. Mm. And Kornai tried to explain why socialism failed. Okay. Because well, Why did socialism fail in your view? In his view, in Janos's view, in your view? Uh, I think Janos is 100% correct. And it's a, it's a brilliant piece of work. So I'm going to be really paraphrasing his view. And he imagined an ideal socialist society. And there wasn't a Stalin. There weren't purges. And you lived up to all the ideals that Marx had for socialism. So he said, in, in, but you do it in a, in a context of an economy which is incredibly primitive, Russia. Okay? Mm. Because if you look at Marx's own vision of the revolution, it was going to happen in England. Okay? The advanced economies would be first to go through the revolution. The socialist, the, the, the primitive economies would have to go through a capitalist transition. And this is the difference between the Mensheviks and the, and the Bolsheviks. So the Mensheviks, and Hyman Minsky came out of the Menshevik family, mm -hmm. the Mensheviks believed you had to go through a capitalist phase. Russia had to go through a capitalist period before it becomes socialist. The Bolsheviks believed they could get there in one go, okay? By yeah. bypass the capitalist phase, do the development under uh, socialism rather than under capitalism. And this is what Janos was actually analyzing. You start from a primitive you know, uh, feudal economy, very little industrialization, and you want to jump to an advanced industrial society from that foundation. So he said what you uh, have then for is a whole range of industries, all of which need as much resources as you can get for them. Okay? So you want to develop agriculture, uh, mining, in industry, every little division of it. They all have legitimate demands on the resources of the country and the state. That means that all your resources are fully employed and are probably overemployed. Mm -hmm. okay? So you have a resource constraint in that society. The easiest way to cope with a resource constraint is to produce last year's commodity, not to innovate, not to make change. So what they will give you is as you start to add, you know, you invest, so you now have a, a beginnings of a steel industry, beginnings of a car industry, and so on, you start investing, but you continue producing the same product you made last year. And I have a perfect personal example of that, which I'll throw in now if you like. It's yes, a pretty heavy conversation. One of my first major girlfriend uh, had a <laughs> brother who yes. wanted to get a motorbike, but he mm -hmm. couldn't afford a Honda or a Kawasaki. At the time, they cost about $3,000 for a 650cc Japanese motorbike. He found he could buy a Cossack mm -hmm. for $650, $1 per cc. So I was there $1 when it got this, this, yeah, is, like it. This, this is in this is in suburban Sylvania waters in a, in Sydney. Mm -hmm. So this crate arrives with the Cossack motorbike inside it. So we take it apart. It's then got all these wooden palings. We have to pull off the wooden palings to open it up. Then there's oil soaked rag over this thing, which is tied on a on a wooden base. Yeah. We take the oil soaked rag off and we stare in all its glory in a 1942 BMW. Yeah. Okay, it was exactly the same as Steve McQueen and yeah. Great Escape. So the Russians for 30 years were making the same bloody motorbike. It had a bicycle seat. 
Yeah. Okay. And this is what that's how they cope. They've just made the same damn machine every year. And he said, so that's that's the outcome. You you actually want the best possible world. You're trying to build as fast as possible. You're paying workers as high wages as you possibly can. And th- that leads to a world where you don't innovate. But he said, capitalism, on the other hand, pure capitalist economy, you're trying to pay workers as little as possible. You have competitive industries. You're trying to take demand away from your rivals. You have Kawasaki versus Honda versus you know, um, uh, BMW, et cetera, et cetera. The way you get demand away from your competitors is by innovating. Mm-hmm. So what you will get is cycles and booms and slumps, but you will innovate and change over time. So what you find was this huge gap between socialist volume production with no innovation and capitalism with innovation. So that was the, the fundamental failing that Janos Kornai saw. So why did, why did socialism not innovate? Because if you go back to this famous historical incident with Khrushchev in the United Nations, bangs, takes off his shoe and bangs the desk, says, we will bury you. He literally meant we're going to bury you in commodities. Yeah. We're going to produce more output than you are. And he was wrong. Because fundamentally, in the long term, to bury somebody in commodity production, you have to innovate. Yeah. And like, there's also, there's another um, remarkable Soviet engineer who was given the job of interpreting Marx's ideas of industrial sectors. So he had the uh, commodity sphere, the industry sphere, sector one, sector two, sector three. Uh, Sector one, producing consumer goods. Sector two, producing capital goods. Sector three, producing luxury goods for capitalists. And so he had a a three-sector model of the economy, and he was talking about the dynamics between them. And what Feldman did was reinterpret this as an engineer would reinterpret it, which was brilliant work. Uh, So what he said was, uh, you, you need to produce the means of production. If you want to grow quickly, you focus on producing the means of production rather than commodities. So you don't make cars, you make car factories, okay? You make a few cars, but most of the effort goes into expanding how many factories you have. And what he did was do a mathematical model where you'd start off with very low levels of consumer good output, but then you would just go exponential, okay? Now, I took a look at that back when I was doing my master's degree and the training in mathematics, I took Feldman's equations and then looked at what was actually driving it was he was imagining correctly a huge pool of unemployed labor. If you go back to the earliest stages of Soviet industrialization back in 1917, post the Second World, post the First World War, you had all these unemployed workers, you had all these peasants you could take off the land and put into factories. So you had a huge supply of workers. What you had to do was build the factories. So you're building the factories, but at a certain point you exhaust the supply of Un- lowly employed or unemployed labor. Mm-hmm. And so rather than having this, this exponential takeoff, you hit a ceiling. Mm-hmm. And then you can only grow as fast as the population because you're not innovating. Okay? So that's what actually hit the Soviet system. And it's why they never buried the Western consumer goods. And instead, why Eastern consumers looked in envy at the goods being purchased by their Western people and said, if that's exploitation, we want exploitation. <laughs> so, okay, there's a lot of interesting stuff to ask here, which is, so Marx's vision for the s- socialist utopia is you have to go through capitalism. Mm. The Mensheviks were true to Marx's original idea. Right, so is there a case to be made that in the long arc of human history on, like, human civilization on Earth, that we're going to live out 
Marx's vision for a utopia, which is like, will we run into a wall with capitalism? I think we are running into a wall with capitalism. In fact, I think we've already gone through the wall and we haven't yet realized we've smashed our skulls. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but on the other side, um, we're bleeding and everything like that. Uh, is uh, Does Marx have any insights on what the other side of capital, um, what, what is beyond I, I think, capitalism? I think that beautiful phrase of from each according to his ability to each according to his needs describes what we sh we should end up with. And I think that's actually, if I think about, you know, you know I'm an Elon Musk fan, mm -hmm. uh, that's what I think is partially going to be the nature of society if we build one that functions on Mars. Mm -hmm. Because, and I've actually seen an interview with his the Italian who's involved in designing what the future colony will look like. He was actually asked this question, can there be enormous inequality in Martian civilization? The guy said, absolutely not. Because the resources, again, resource constraint applies. Uh, you simply can't give somebody a underground bunker 100 times the size of somebody else's 100 uh, underground bunker. There's a the the scarcity of resources imp imposes a need for uh, for a, for equality overall. Is that always? That's interesting. I mean, the scarcity of resources. Wait, but I feel like that's a contradiction. I thought. Are you In thinking neoclassical about scarcity? Yeah, I'm. I'm barely thinking at all. It's <laughs> not, uh, uh, so wait, I. Th I thought scarcity, the best way to build on top of scarcity, is a capitalist type of machine. Well, no, this is this is where again our vision of what scarcity is is wrong, because, and Ricardo said this best, actually better than Marx, because Ricardo said there are some products. Uh, whose value is determined entirely by their scarcity. Yeah. Paintings, rare wines, et cetera, et cetera. He said, they are things you cannot reproduce in a factory. Mm. He said, the essence of capitalism is what you can make in a factory. And therefore, for these unique objects, these rare objects, um, Picasso painting, um, uh, you know, a, a beautiful bottle of wine, et cetera, et cetera, then the utility, it, it can't be reproduced easily. So its price will be determined by subjective valuation. He said what we're talking about in capitalism is the stuff you can make en masse, okay? And that 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 is the true focus of a capitalist economy. And that is not about scarcity. That is about, you know, you, the only scarcity applies when you don't have the resources to make them anymore, or you can't use the energy involved because you'll damage the biosphere too much, which we've already done. Okay, But fundamentally, the scarcity that neoclassicals have made us think about and Austrians think about as well is, is non-reproducible. But the essence of capitalism is the commodity, the backscratcher, the two-buck backscratcher. Anybody can, you know, the cheapest chips to make, and that's why you can make a profit out of them. Um, not, not the elaborate gold thing with diamonds and rubies that only the king gets. So we think we've, our vision of scarcity has been perverted by neoclassicals analyzing the exception to capitalism and calling it capitalism. Okay, fair enough. So, you know, let's put Mars aside because I think there's a lot of uh, strange factors that have to do with a whole nother planet, mm. civilization that we don't quite understand, like how economics works with um, with different geographic locations, one of which have new challenges, mm. which is what essentially this is. I don't I don't know if you can apply the same economic. No, I'm saying your, your question. I think we'll we'll be forced into that ultimately by having to make a compromise with the ecology, and we've been ruthless about the ecology of this planet 
and we're going to pay the price for it. So if you have a, a planet where you can't be ruthless, okay? Well, yeah. You, okay. You have to mine it as carefully as possible. Then those that, that utopian might be imposed upon you for the needs for survival on that planet. Back here, uh, Marx's utopia was still the one that ignored the ecology. And I think uh, if I have a vision of a utopia in future, it's got bugger all to do about what humans get out of it. It's what humans respect. They have to respect life. So, so I don't see that as the, I see that as a as a one eyed utopia, a utopia for a single species, as if it can exist on its own, which we should know it can't. Uh, quick bathroom break. Yeah, I'm about yeah, that would be great. We took a little bit of a a break, and now we're back. We needed to take a break because my brain broke, and I'm piecing it back together. You mentioned ecology and life, and the value of all of that. We'll return to it if we can. Mm -hmm. But first, we said why this kind of, this idea of why socialism failed. Mm. Can we linger on this a little bit longer? And how did the ideas of Karl Marx lead to Stalinism? So this particular implementation. Yeah. Um, is there something fundamental to these ideas that leads to a dictator and that leads to atrocities. There's something about the mechanism of the bureaucracy that's built that leads to an, um, a human being that's able to attain, integrate uh, absolute power and then start abusing that power, all that kind of stuff. Like some of the history of yeah. the 20th century, is that inextricably connected to the ideas of Karl Marx. I, th I think to some extent it is, but I'm going to also say that if it hadn't been for the Bolsheviks interpreting Marx and saying we can reach socialism without going through capitalism, then it might not have happened. So if you look at the, like the Mensheviks were a rival political group in Russia, uh, and that's where Hyman Minsky, who's a huge inspiration for me. So came. he's an economist who was maybe, can we take a little tangent, who was Hyman Minsky? Yeah, Hyman Minsky uh, was the person who developed an analysis of capitalism based on financial instability. Mm -hmm. And he was actually the uh, PhD student of Joseph Schumpeter and an Austrian economist as well, whose name I've forgotten temporarily. Um, and he asked him, he, his parents were uh, both refugees from Russia during the Stalinist period because the Mensheviks were being wiped out uh, in Russia just like any other opponents to uh, the Bolsheviks were being eliminated. So the, I think his parents met in Chicago, mm -hmm. still remained socialist, still remained politically active, and he was educated in a family that was just imbued with Marx as its vision. He end, end, ended up fighting in the Second World War on the American side, coming back to America and studying mathematics and then also doing an economics degree leading to a PhD. And the question he posed for himself is what causes Great Depressions? And he put it beautifully. He said, can it happen again, it being the Great Depression. And if it can't happen, then what has changed between the society before the First, Second World War and after that makes a depression impossible? Mm -hmm. What's the answer to those two questions? Can it happen His answer again? was, yes, it can mm -hmm. happen again. 
But what has prevented it happening by the time he started writing about it, which was the um, so late this, 50s mm-hmm. to the mid, mid-80s, late 80s. We met once, but only once. Over um, a beer? Or huh? Over a beer? Or? No, he gave a seminar at New South Uni, hmm. and he's a bit of an obstreperous bastard. Was what, what, a stripper? Obstreperous. What? Wow, what is it? <laughs> it means argumentative and, and likely to dismiss you. So like a, a, good, a good mate of mine was the guy who brought him out to Australia, a guy, a guy called Graham White. We're still, g'day, Graham. We're still good mates. G'day, Graham. <laughs> I love your language and your accent. It's a great, actually, there's a, there's a really good TikTok I saw earlier today with an Aboriginal guy saying he loves the Australian language because it's a, it, absolutely ironic. As you ask an Australian a question, and he'll give you an answer, which is the opposite of what he means. And you've got to work out the rest for yourself. Yeah. So he goes out to another Aboriginal mate and says, uh, G'day, mate. He says, How are you saying? Oh, not bad. What have you been doing recently? Oh, not much. Uh, <laughs> uh, when are we going? It's oh, not, 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 not too far, not too yeah. soon. Yeah. Whereas it's oh, not too far away. And yeah. all negatives. And he's a beautiful, beautiful rendition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, that's the cool thing about the internet culture. But the, that's, that's, they appreciate that yeah. ironic side. Like, for example, the best compliment you can give as an Aboriginal, to somebody else's, that's deadly. That's deadly. That's a compliment. That's, that's deadly. deadly, okay? Yeah. Uh, one, another mate of mine, this comes to the Australian language, if I call you a bastard, that's a compliment. Yeah. Depending on how I intonate the word bastard. <laughs> bastard. Bastard. That's deadly. Yeah. I love that. And there's something, unfortunately, there's something about the British accent that makes people sound maybe brilliant, maybe sophisticated, uh, but actually wise. Pompous. Yeah, no, that's unfortunately the downside of that, yeah. is you can sound pompous. There's something about the Australian accent that you just can't sound brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> it, it humbles you. You sound like you're having a lot of fun. There's wit, there's all that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. But you just can't be like Carl, you know, Carl Marx in an Australian accent would just not come off. That is a very good point. He would Actually, not be able to pull off the beard. That's, that's, yeah. I mean, I just yeah. It's fascinating that that the accent determines, you know, something about the person. Maybe it's the chicken and the egg too. It drives it drives the, the way of the discourse. Obviously, there's a lot of brilliance. There's a lot of brilliance in your work. Yeah. But it sounds like you're always having fun. Yeah, and and like this, uh, Poncho has got a lot of Australian mates here. Yeah, he spent uh, what about a month, how long in Australia? Year and a half. Year and a half, and he's got all these mates who plays Aussie rules football in Austin. Nice. You should join them one day. I will. It's, it's actually rough. It's, it's a very creative sport. It's much more fun. It's different than rugby. Oh, very. Rugby is hopeless. Rugby is two two morons smashing their bodies against Easy each other. Easy now. Easy now. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. We, we do not mean to offend the rugby fans in the audience. Well, okay. What's so? It's too simplistic. Rugby. It's too simplistic. It's, it's it's. I mean, there's skill in it. I've seen some really skillful rugby union and rugby league players in my day. Yeah. But it fundamentally, if you hit somebody hard enough, they go down. Yeah. Okay. Whereas in Aussie rules, it's about catching the ball. And then okay. kicking the ball and more pass, skill, less power. more skill, and it's it's a, it's a, and the bodies of the athletes. Uh, I can actually get off and measure what a sport is like by the bodies it creates, mm-hmm. and you get these incredibly elegant, uh, lithe, muscular forms out of Aussie such, rules. Such beautiful words you have in your vocabulary, lithe. I don't even know, <laughs> but I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll assume you know what it means, and maybe somebody in the audience. Okay, so mm. all right. Fine, mm. fine. We should also mention that you've, in your youth, uh, you know, like last year, have had uh, Olympic weightlifting as part, yeah. 
that's, that's part of your life. So you're long time um, ago. And, and like you said, tennis. I also played tennis for many, 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 many years. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating game. It's a wonderful game. Yeah, yeah. that's my favorite game. <sighs> Karl Marx and Stalin. Yeah. So how? How do we get onto Aussie football and Australian and the accent? I'm not really sure. You talked about um, the way I said something about Karl Marx and would Karl Marx. Anyway, we, we got there. Yeah, we got but, there but, and now we return. But back to Marx, I think. It's not the destination. I it's think the Marx, the, the failure of, of socialism with Janos Kornai captured beautifully this idea already called demand constrained versus resource constrained economies. Mm -hmm. And you know, capitalism is demand constrained. Okay. And, and this is, again, where neoclassical theory is completely wrong, empirically completely wrong. So the neoclassicals have a vision of capitalism being resource-constrained, and it's about maximizing your usage of resources subject to constraints. And as Cornell said, that's really what happened under socialism. What happens under capitalism is that you have 15, 20 companies producing automobiles. Mm -hmm. They are all trying to capture as much of the market as they can. If you add up their marketing plans, you're going to get 120, 130% of the actual market. So they're all going to have excess capacity. When you build a factory, you're building it with a plan for it to exist for 5, 10, 15 years. You have to have excess capacity in the factory. So that means that capitalism has a far greater productive capacity than it actually uses. And then the way that you manage to get demand into your factory is to innovate and produce something nobody else does. Or you're producing in volume, and when somebody produces like a bung tire, comes out of Firestone, then Goodyear is ready to expand its production and take advantage of that. So that's, that's the actual nature of competition in capitalism. And that means that we get a cornucopia as, of goods, even if we're lowly workers. The variety of goods in capitalism is overwhelming. And, and that's just doesn't happen in socialism. You get your 1942 Cossack as your motorbike. That's it. When you put your money down to buy a refrigerator, it'll arrive in 10 years because the factory's already fully constrained. Uh, so all these resource constraints mean that people aren't happy under socialism. And if you've got a whole bunch of people that aren't happy, then the best way to control them is to suppress them. So I think in that sense, ultimately, yes, it does lead to something like Stalinism. So it's easier to give happy people freedom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, happy people get pretty silly outside. I'm not, not particularly, the, the extent to which Americans overuse and distort the word freedom drives me balmy. Um, well, but, you know, the, the, all of these words can be distorted, but they all, at the core, have some fu fundamental power and beauty. Yeah. And, and then we just distort on the surface for the fun of it. Yeah. Just start battles on Twitter and so on. But what citizens of the Soviet world didn't feel was freedom. Yeah. Not just in, first of all, it wasn't freedom to buy commodities. The commodities were supposed to be on the shops weren't there. Uh, the volume couldn't be produced. And what you then got out of that as well was the, you know, the classic Soviet joke, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, you so get, you're not motivated. Oh, the guy, I went to Cuba about oh, eight years ago. Yep. Invited to give a talk then. And I was staying in a hotel. Itself, the hotel's a story. There's one day my meetings were cancelled. So I thought I might go down to the beach. And they had a, in, the, in the hotel, they had a wing, which is the tourist office, and there were three women working inside the office. So I yeah. thought I'd just go up and ask them, you know, how do I get to the beach? And one of them says to me, and I stood there, just stood in the, in the, in the room, waiting to see if they'd make eye contact with me. Mm -hmm. Three women, nobody else in the place. None of them looked at me. So I finally went up to one of them and said, I want to go to the you know, beach and do some surfing. Where She said, I can get a taxi outside. 
Now, fundamentally, she was saying, well, I'm being paid shit money here. I'm not going to, I don't want to work. Uh, I'm not going to do anything uh, apart from sit here and, and qualify for my time. And as much as there are reasons the Cubans have suffered from American embargoes and all that sort of stuff, you've still got that fundamental shortage economy that, uh, that Cornet spoke about coming out of the, the structure of central ownership and central control of distribution and investment. It breaks my heart because I think some of the effects of that persist throughout time. It become part of the culture too. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very it's interesting. Negative culture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, from... From the Western perspective. Well, even from the people living through it. I mean, like I had enough conversations with Cubans, you know, meeting him on the street, hopping in a cab. There was one guy I was talking to who was, a, he was an industrial chemist and he got a bit of money being a cab driver because he could make money out of taking foreign tourists from the airport to the city. By the so, way, this episode is brought to you by delicious Coca-Cola. <laughs> That's why I didn't want to have it on camera, but anyway. No, maybe they'll actually sponsor. You want to well, you you make sure you yeah, rotate okay, the label it, to it, show. Okay, this is capitalism. Yeah, you go. What are we talking about here? Even though it's red. Uh, red yeah, and black, but, but, it's actually anarchist. <laughs> uh, I should tell you, I don't know if you know who Michael Malice is. Michael. Michael Malice. He's an anarchist and he lives next door. He's Does a, he? Okay. No, I, I, I've lost touch with anarchist philosophy. I actually used to read, read you know, Kropotkin and Bakunin and so on. And... I enjoyed their philosophy, and then I helped organize an anarchist conference once. Mm-hmm. And that was the biggest it's antidote possible <laughs> to being an anarchist. That sounds like a, a entry point to a joke. Yeah, I helped to organize it, it is, an anarchist party. It is. I mean, I, we literally spent three days arguing over whether there should or should not be a chairperson for conversations. Yeah. Well, that may be that... Uh, Monty, Monty argue- Python, Life of Brian, was... <laughs> Lived out live. Uh, look at the bright side of life. <laughs> All right. So part of that explains why, for example, even to this day in some of those parts of the world, entrepreneurship does not does not flourish. Hmm. There's not a spirit in the people to start businesses, to launch new endeavors and all those kinds of things. Hmm. Um, we're just taking a, all kinds of strange little strolls, but how do you explain the mechanisms of China today, where there's quite a bit of sort of uh, flourishing of businesses and so on. It's a very peculiar kind of entrepreneurship. They got away from central control, uh, but but they still managed central political control, but diversified economic control. So there's a, you could, it is possible to draw a line between politics and It is possible, and I think in some ways China's more likely to survive as a society going into the future than Western uh, capitalist societies are. Um, so it's like uh, if if we do the the Karl Marx the 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 foreground and the background, you can um, centralize the politics, the the, 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 the humanity, <laughs> the subjective stuff, and then uh, distribute the objectives. You've got to have the goods, yeah. And that's what I mean. The, the big change from Mao to Deng Xiaoping was the characterizing that little saying that uh, I don't care whether you have a black cat or a white cat so long as it catches mice. And there was a level of pragmatism to the Deng Xiaoping revolution over Mao and Madame Mao in particular. And that was manifest in the desire to get as much of those Western goods as possible. And I was actually in China in 81. 
took a group of journalists there, as I mentioned earlier, for a tour. We, we ended up going to the Sichuan Free Trade Zone, and that gave us an idea of why um, China was going to succeed because they had a rule that you couldn't just come in and exploit the cheap wages. You had to also have a Chinese partner, and within five years, the Chinese partner had to own 50% of the business, which is huge. And that gives you an idea of the reduction in wages these American corporations are looking at. They'd shut down the factory in the what's now the Rust Belt of America. They might be paying somebody there, you know, at that time maybe $2 an hour, and they come across to China and they're paying two cents an hour. So they were the enormous amount of wages that they dropped. They were willing to ha- forego half the profits and the ownership of the firm. So what the Chinese were doing wasn't just uh, exploiting their labor force. It was also building a capitalist class. And that meant that you had this, that's where all the you know Chinese corporations have come from. So they were building a capitalist system within a socialist command political system. And that worked. And it's still working. So it was the centralization of the economic stuff, the Gosplan approach. I think that was where the, the Soviets failed. Uh, and, and what the Chinese realized after what they went through under Mao was you have to have that capitalist period, but they weren't going to abandon the communist control politically of the country at the same time. And that worked out brilliantly. And there's a huge amount of innovation taking place in China today. And they also will do gigantic infrastructure projects, you know, breathtaking planning going into that. If you've, you would have seen videos of you know, building a skyscraper in a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the planning that has to go into that, the pre-preparation that's necessary is enormous. So there's a real respect for engineers as well in that society, which does not apply in the West. What do you think about, the, from the Western perspective, the destructive effects of centralized control of the populace, of the ideas, of the discourse, of the censorship and the surveillance, all those um, of things. So and as- it's a bit like we were talking about Russia to some extent beforehand uh, with centralized versus decentralized corruption. And when you had a, the, the centralized political stuff means you know you can't criticize within China, but so long as you don't criticize, you can do what you like. And how destructive is that to the human spirit? Which is, um, from the American perspective, that I, I found some pretty feels destructive. Before, I've been to China quite a few times over my life, a lot in the last, not for about four years, but for the six years before that, a few visits. And I would be staying in second and third and fourth tier cities. So, you know, populations of only 4 million people, which is quite small on Chinese standards. And I had a lot of happy people that I was interacting with, my girlfriend at the time, her social circle. Um, and, like, you, you can feel when people can't discuss a political issue. For example, in Thailand, you can't discuss the king. Mm-hmm. Okay, they, they still have, you know, uh, less majest laws. So you can actually be jailed for discussing the king. And you can feel that to some extent, and it is a political issue in Thailand now. But in in China, what I got back from most people, it was a bit like a benevolent uh, big big brother. Mm-hmm. Okay, But then when you get things out like the lockdown, which has applied recently, then you get the, the failings of the Soviet system is still there in the Chinese system in that yeah. um, the easiest way to avoid criticism as an underling carrying out instructions of people above you is to carry those instructions out to the letter Mm -hmm. beyond what the people actually want you to do at the top. 
So we had a, a classic illustration of that when I took these journalists. There was a, a news report saying that uh, China's output of light industry had grown by 17% in the previous year, but heavy industry had fallen by 7%. We just did, don't compute. So we kept on asking, why did this happen? Every time we asked a question, this is back in 81, the answer would be the initial answer. We followed the directive of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China. Mm -hmm. okay? We finally got a guy to elaborate and say what that was. He said, well, the Central Committee sent out a directive to promote light industry. Mm -hmm. So what did you do? Quote, unquote, we stripped heavy industry factories and turned them into light industry. Yeah. Okay. Now, that's destructive of everything. Okay. And that's the overlay that you've still got sitting over the top of, of China. But a huge part of the industrialization was simply saying, uh, produce whatever you, you, know, you, you can, make goods, market them, sell them. And you get that innovative component of humanity is respected and the goods turn up and everybody's well fed. Food in America, China is far better than food in America. Um, so in, in terms of material satisfaction uh, and, and freedom, so, like for example, enjoy, enjoy dancing. I mean, you, we went to, um, um, I think, somewhere in Shanghai, and there's this line of people uh, involving a woman who would have been close to her 90s and a kid who was about six mm -hmm. or four. Partying it up. Partying it up in the open air and doing this Chinese collective dance. You have to thing. be really careful about that kind of thing. So in terms of measuring the flourishing of a people by looking at their happiness. I have so many thoughts on this, but I'm imagining North Korea. And if you talk to people in North Korea, mm. I think they would say they're happy. No. Well, let me, let me, let me try to okay. complete this argument. Not an argument, but a sort of challenge to your thought, which, especially in the bigger cities, because they don't know the alternative. So what else do you need? There's enough food on the table. We have a leader that loves us and we love him. We're full of, our hearts are full of love. Yeah. Our table is full of food, they would say, because it's enough food. Mm. Um, what else do you want from life? No, I think, okay, like that's... So let me sort of chat, because yeah, like... That's, that's an alternative. I mean, I've... I've one when, time in Romania. So, so let me sort of complete that, sorry. Because yeah. I'm taking the most challenging aspect. Yeah. When, when there's centralized control of information, that you don't know the alternative, that you don't know how green the grass is on the other side. And so your idea of happiness might be very constrained. So, uh, you know, you could also argue that is happiness. If you don't know, <laughs> like- Ignorance uh, is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. And then so is mm -hmm. happiness really the correct measure- It's uh, not. For, for the flourishing. It's not. But I, I mean, there's actually a, a classic book and movie as well called Mao's Last Answer. Okay. And that is a young man explaining his progression from being a dancer in the Cultural Revolution through to a leading dancer in American and ultimately Australian ballet. Um, and he explicitly says at one point that he's told that the Chinese people have the highest standard of living in the world. And the reaction of him and his kids, like his you know, fellow six-year-olds, is, God, it must be miserable elsewhere in the world then. <laughs> okay. So they knew. They still know. They still know. There's no such thing as that complete ignorance. But what I'm talking about is 
experiences in China, say back in about 2016, 2014, um, there was as a feeling of freedom within limits that you didn't want to transgress because the system was working. Mm-hmm. So if you like, kind of like marriage, pardon? It's kind of like marriage. Hey, that's a good example. <laughs> there's uh, limits. There's limits. There's you limits. can have fun within those limits. That's right. Okay. And and people did have fun and they did feel free, but they didn't want to go and get divorced. But that dilemma yeah. um, was accommodated because the boundaries until you started hitting restrictions were wide. Yep. Okay. Um, and like when you look at it, I mean, look at the, again, with the Chinese Communist Party, the administrators of that are often highly qualified engineers who can then make intelligent decisions about what should be done as infrastructure and so on. Uh, and you go to China and you've got incredible high-speed rail, uh, uh, in, in fantastic infrastructure, internet, telecommunications and so on, uh, rapidly evolving solar. Uh, there's, there's a range of things there that are so well done that respect reflect the fact that the selection process that gives you your political elite is partially focused upon sucking up, et cetera, et cetera. It's still there, but it's also focused upon your skill levels. And you get people making decisions who damn well know what they're talking about. Like Australia's got a classic example. The internet in Australia sucks. The reason it sucks is that the the Labor Party, which is our version of the Democrats, was in control during the global financial crisis. And as part of that, they wanted to bring in High, uh, uh, optical fiber connections to the house. So you'd have an optical fiber backbone and an optical fiber, you know, right to your T100 output uh, from your home. And the Liberal Party fought that and said, that's going to be too expensive. Uh, it'll take too long to do. We're going to do cable to the node and then have a copper network linking from a node on a street to all the houses in the street. Mm-hmm. It's going to be cheaper and faster, have it more soon, blah, blah, blah. Well, it was a total technical fuck-up, mm-hmm. okay? And Australia now has internet that's about 50th or 60th fastest in the world. It's dreadful for the internet. Two political political figures made that decision, Tony Abbott and, and uh, Malcolm Turnbull, r- rivals and leaders of the, um, of the conservative party we call liberal over there. Now, that was shitty decisions that wouldn't happen in a country like China because you've got actual engineers making the decisions. They say you can't get decent speed if you link optical fibre to copper. It's going to f- So what you get is even though you can't make the decisions yourself, a vast majority of the decisions are made intelligently and therefore yeah, you expect it. Yeah, it's interesting, but don't you worry about the corrupting aspects of power oh yeah that that you start you know you you have engineers making intelligent decisions but at which point does the fat king uh start saying oh these engineers are annoying i have good internet i don't understand bring me the grapes well that that, you know you get your caligula effects that can happen like z from what i've seen has got elements of that so friends of mine who are Caucasians and get away with it, they have a game that they play at conferences scoring how often people use Z's name in a presentation and giving extra points for the number of photographs of Z that turn up in the whole thing. So you've got this sort of personality cult coming along as well. But at the same time, the the, the planning for the infrastructure that's being built, the social services, um, the, the general freedom that exists is so great. And like any Chinese person alive today, like if somebody who's Chinese 
my age mm-hmm. uh, was would have been a, an adult under the early period of the, the late period of Mao. And God Almighty, the change, the improvement they've seen in their lives—that's what they think about. So, but it's the—if you just look at the history of the 20th century, your intuition would say that some of the mechanisms we see in China now will get you into trouble in the long term. So, it seems to be working but, really well in, in many ways in terms of improving the quality of life of the average citizen in China. But you start to get worried about how does this go wrong? Well, yeah, but at the same time, maybe, I mean, often people will say, you know, what's your vision for the future? And what they mean is, what vision for the future do you have that I'm going to like? Right. Okay. Now, what if you have a vision of the future that you don't like? It's dreadful. I mean, that's the ecological crisis I think we're walking blindfolded into. Well, that's... Uh, right, that 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 part of the picture we'll have to we'll have to talk about. Yeah, how fundamental of a problem that is. Okay, but what does that have to do with the future of China? What well, it has that? to do is that if you wish to impose dramatic controls on the consumption of the rich, which would be necessary to reduce our consumption burden, so that we can get closer to the ecological envelope we've destroyed already, then you're going to be more likely successful doing that with a centralized system, where people accept centralized political control, then you were in a country where it's all diversified and you scream freedom every between every point in a tennis match. And I'm, I've literally seen that when I was in Philadelphia some time back. Um, so the ideology that, that accepts a collectivist attitude may be more successful in controlling our reducing human consumption levels. Because when, when we talk about democracy, I mean, who's voting here? How many horses and elephants and birds get to vote, okay? It's very... What's a, what's a bird? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't see them around here. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a very human-centric vision we have of this planet. Yeah. And we're going to pay a price for that. Okay, so you're saying to deal with global catastrophic events, the uh, centralized, centralized planning might be... Maybe, uh, may, I think will work better, period. I mean, I, I like... Uh, but, again, but, but there is some centralized stuff in the United States, for example. Oh, your I mean, military. Yeah, I know. No, no. Okay. All right. <laughs> now, now's that, now there's that feisty Australian. Yeah. Uh, so besides the military, there is, that's the ideal of the federal government in the United States is that there is some centralized uh, infrastructure building. There's some big there's not enough project. Of it. Yeah. But there's some. There's and some. The, the question is, when you deal with greater and greater global catastrophic events, like the pandemic that we were just living through, yeah. that the government would be able to step up mm-hmm. and impose enough centralized planning to allow us to deal, sort of enable, empower the citizenry to deal with these catastrophic events. Uh, in the case of the pandemic, a lot of people argue that the, uh, first of all, the world, but also in the United States failed to uh, effectively deal with the pandemic on the medical side, yeah. on the social side, and the on the financial side, the supply chain, all everything in terms of communication, in terms of um, inspiring the populace with the power of science on all yeah, the fronts, yeah. they they failed. But the the ideal is that we'd be able to succeed. You would have to have a small, efficient. The ideal, the American ideal, is you have a small, efficient government that's able to to take on tasks precisely like the pandemic. But the thing is, maybe it shouldn't have been as small as it was. 
I mean, my favourite instance of that actually involves the UK because the whole neoliberal approach is about small, efficient government. Okay? Well, small, efficient government works when you face small, efficient challenges. When you face something systemic rather than episodic, then it's going to break down. And like this is, I mean, one of the things I, I greatly respect is Taleb's idea of anti-fragile. You want a society which is anti-fragile, not easily broken, whereas neoliberalism has pushed us towards this vision of efficiency, but it's easily snapped. Like in the UK, uh, I've forgotten the government minister involved, but she was, uh, she asked her expert committee, how many, this is before, well before the pandemic, how many masks should we have on hand in case of a pandemic? And the answer from the experts was about a billion. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's 50 masks. That's 20 masks per person. Okay. Oh, that's too many. Let's just make 50 million masks. That's one mask per person. It was gone in a matter of a day. Okay. And therefore, that's why they told us, well, masks don't work. You know, what they meant was we don't have enough masks for our health people, let alone for you and the public. So we're going to bullshit you and tell you those masks don't really work. And then people don't wear masks. And then we've got enough masks. We rush up the production job. And by the time it comes along, people have got the skepticism about masks. So who does the. Uh can you elaborate who does the blame in that case go on to? The blame comes down to the philosophy that says government should always be small. No, but do you, do you really think that bigger government would be the solution to the mask issue? No, but so what? let me let me push back yeah, sort of it's yeah. possible that that that's capitalism solves that problem. Well, uh, not not if there's no money in really long-term planning and capitalism. Okay, there's money there's money in well, capitalism is, is isn't it possible to construct isn't possible for capitalism to construct a system that ensures against catastrophic events? Not when they're systemic. You can ensure against episodic events if you occasionally have a really bad storm, but in general, the weather's not so bad that all the infrastructure is being destroyed, then you can share that around on a percentage basis. If you have a Gaussian distribution for your events and you don't, the mean doesn't move around too much, and the standard deviation doesn't change all that much, then insurance works fine. But if you have an ep if that's episodic, if you have systemic stuff where the climate is changing completely, and you're going to wipe out your agricultural cap capabilities, uh, you you simply can't do insurance on that front. You you can't make a profit out of catastrophe and capitalism. Okay, that so that example of um, climate change. Let's talk about it. Okay. So you you mentioned that the human brain, the economy, and the biosphere are three of the most complex systems we know. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you also criticize the economics community for looking at the effects of climate change when measured as, you know, the effect on the GDP. Yep. So you're saying it's a catastrophic thing that the biggest challenge our society, our world is facing. Mm -hmm. Why? If the, the economists disagree with you, the, the effects on the GDP will be minor, mm -hmm. uh, so we'll deal with it when it comes. Mm -hmm. That's that's the argument against, that's the devil's advocate. You're saying, no, it is uh, a thing that will change our world forever mm -hmm. in ways that we should really, really, really be thinking about. Okay. Okay. Make the case of why you disagree well, with the, the case economy. is simple. Economists have made up their own numbers <laughs> to say that it's trivial. And you didn't. I no. I haven't even tried to make the numbers. I'm reading what the scientists write. Okay. Okay. And what the economists have done, and like this is 
William Nordhaus in particular, Nobel Prize winner, ex-president of the American Economic Association, literally assumed that a roof will protect you from climate change. He didn't say it in those words. What he said was 87% of American industry occurs in carefully controlled environments, which will not be subject to climate change. Mm -hmm. Now, the only things that all of manufacturing, all of services, he included mining as well, forgetting about open-cut mining, uh, government activities and the finance sector, all they have in common is they happen beneath, beneath a roof. So yeah. he's basically saying climate affects the weather. Climate is weather. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, that is not at all what is meant by climate change. It's mean changing the entire pattern of the uh, of the of the weather system of the planet. For example, the most extreme form of climate change would be a breakdown in the three circulation cells that exist in each hemisphere: the Hadley cell, the ferrous cell, I think it's called, and the polar cell, 0 to 30, 30 to 60, 60 to 90. Those are the main uh, bubbles, if you like, in the atmosphere. Now, if we get enough increase in the energy in the atmosphere, that like just like you turn the temperature up on a stove and you have nice bubbles occurring in a pot of soup and then turn the temperature up and they all break down and you've got bubbles everywhere. Uh, that's called the equable climate. If that happens, then most of the rainfall is going to occur between 0 and 20 and 70 and 90, and the middle is going to be dry, except for extreme storms. Uh, we, would, we, we built our societies in a period of extreme stability of the climate. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the long-term temperature records, it's up and down like a, you know, like a seesaw, a saw, a, like a sawtooth blade between, say, one degree warmer than now and four degrees or six degrees cooler over the last million years. But when you look at where we evolved, it's just at a turning point on the peak of one of those ups and downs. So those, I've forgotten the name of the cycles, but the cycles caused by changes in the Earth's rotation around the sun. Uh, and so we, we evolved our civilization just at the top. So coming up from a, a cold period, and then we're going to head down to an, another cold period. And that's when human civilization came along. It's about a period of about 12,000 years. So across that period, the temperature has changed by not much more than half a degree up and down. Now, we're blasting it well and truly out of those confines. And I'm, my way of interpreting what what climate change means is the stability of that climate that enables to build sedentary civilizations and not be a nomadic species is being destroyed. So the the challenge, and by the way, I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah, right ahead. Uh, the, the question is, is there something fundamentally different now about human civilization that we're able to um, build technology that alleviates some of the destructive effects that we have on the climate? We don't know. And yeah, we're going to find out the hard way. And the uncertainty you think would be very costly. Extremely. Like many of the trajectories we might take would be much more costly than they're profitable. Yeah. And and like we've seen some of the storms that are happening now in, in Europe, the ones that you know washed away a village in Germany some time ago, the, the fire storm that hit Canada of all places. Mm-hmm. I've forgotten the name of the town that was burnt down, but an enormous temperatures in Canada. Uh, again, the storms that have been happening back in Australia, uh, these are all manifestations of a complete shift in the weather patterns of the planet. And they can wipe out, like, you know, a village just disappears, just wiped out by you know, unprecedented rains. And this keeps on happening. It, we've, we've, we are still 
living in a sedentary lifestyle when we're a nomadic species. Mm-hmm. Okay? So to be able to maintain that sedentary lifestyle, we do need to, to engineer the planet. We need to keep it within that range of plus one, you know, one, plus half a degree Celsius, minus half a degree, which is really what it's been like for the last 10, 12,000 years. Instead, we're blasting it right out of that range. And we know some of the past climates that have existed then. We can model what they imply for our our food production systems, for example, not the only example, but obviously crucial. So when you look at what are called global climate models produced by scientists, uh, one of the examples, and it was published by the OECD last year, 2021, uh, in the chapter on what would happen if we lose what's called the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC, and people would colloquially know that as the Gulf Stream. And that's what distributes heat or around all the oceans of the planet. It's, it's part of a huge chain called the thermohaline circulation. But the part that goes across from the um, the equator to the North Atlantic, that's called the AMOC and Gulf Stream for a colloquial way. If that disappears in the context of a two and a half degree Celsius increase in average global temperature, then the proportion of the Earth's surface, which is suitable for producing wheat, will fall from 20% to 7%. Proportion for, for, for corn, similar sort of fall. The proportion suitable for rice will go from 2% to 3%. Mm-hmm. Now, that means a catastrophic, and that's the word used in the report, catastrophic collapse in food production. Okay? So that's what we're toying with. And we are one and a half. We're actually less than, we're about, we're about halfway there to that two degrees, 2.5. Uh, and economists, on the other hand, and this is Richard Toll, okay, uh, published a paper 2016 claiming using what he calls an integrated assessment model that economists developed that losing the Gulf Stream would increase global GDP by 1.1%. Now, that his model, this is what really pisses me off about these people. It's the worst work I've read in 50 years of being a critic of neoclassical economics. The GCMs, the one scientists produce, of course, include precipitation as well as temperature. The IAMs that the economists produce, and this is stated yet again in a paper in 2021, do not include precipitation. They simply have temperature. So they assume that if temperature improves by moving towards a temperature which is better for producing agriculture, Mm. okay, then so will precipitation. Now, that's completely wrong. They've left out a crucial... Imagine trying to model the climate while ignoring the fact that there's rainfall. Right. That's what they've done. So their work is so bad so dreadfully bad it should never have been published so they over all right, right, right okay i'm, uh, I'm gonna go for them sorry this is uh, well no no i want 100 <laughs> as, as they deserve it so it's an oversimplification hmm. but i also want you to steel man people you disagree with and criticize people you agree with if, hmm. if possible yeah uh to be sort of intellectually honest here you do say sort of to push back on the, the catastrophic thinking about uh climate change that uh, ecology, the biosphere, mm. is a complex system. Yeah, economics, the economy, is it's a complex system. system. So, how can we make predictions about complex systems? How can we make a hope of um, having a semi-confident predictions about the complex system? So, the scientific community yeah. is very confident about. Uh, the complex system that is the biosphere mm. and the uh, 
the crisis that's before us on the horizon. Yeah. Uh, and then the economists are, as a community, I don't know, I don't know what percentage, but too much. Too much. Uh, that part of the community is very confident. Mm. Looking at the uh, economics complex, uh, complex system, in saying that no, this system we have of labor and money and capital mm. and so on, we'll be able to deal with that crisis and mm. any other crisis. Mm. And uh, they kind of construct simplified models that mm. justify um, their confidence. So how do we know who to believe? Well, for a start, if you believe the economists, you, you need a, you need your, brain, your head read. Because it's not an argument. I know it's not an argument. It's a summary of an argument, and that is the, no. That sounds a lot like an opinion and an emotional. I know. I know. And I'm listen, so angry so, about it. Like, listen, I, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you where I stand. Yeah. And I've begun looking, studying the climate change. Yeah. Uh, much more. I used to be on things I don't understand. Mm. Have not spent time on. I have so many colleagues that are scientists that I deeply respect yep. and I trust their opinion. Mm -hmm. um, I have seen the lesser angels of my colleagues on the on the pandemic side, on the yeah. COVID side. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The confidence, the arrogance mm. that in part blinded, I believe, mm. the the jump between basic scientific research to the uh to public policy. Yep. And then that, so I've become a little bit more cautious in my trust on climate change. I'm still in the same place. Mm, mm. Uh, and not, I don't mean climate change, on anything scientists say. I'm, I've become a little bit, wait a minute. Um, how does the basic scientific facts of our reality map to what we should do as a human, as a human civilization? Yeah. There I wanna be a little bit careful. So whenever now, I yeah. see arrogance and confidence, I become suspicious. Well, I'm the same, and that's why I'm being angry about The Economist, because there's un arrogance. incredible arrogance, yeah. incredible stupidity at the arrogance, uh, assumptions which you look at it and think, how did anybody let that get published? Sure. Okay. So that's there, what the, the, the economic analysis of the effects of climate change yeah. are poor Very, in many cases. Incredibly poor. Yeah. And this is like Bjorn Lomborg, styles himself as the skeptical environmentalist and criticizes the environmental models, he doesn't take a look. He doesn't criticize the work come out by economists. Yes. You look at it, it's so bad. Is it possible to do good economics modeling of the effects of climate change? Yeah, it is possible. Uh, very difficult. Or is it like one complex system stack on top it's of too much. In that case, yeah. I mean, like the, to, to me, the what, what you should be looking at is saying, what are the scientists saying are the consequences, probable consequences, not we're not guaranteed, but probable consequences of increasing the energy level of the atmosphere by the amount we're doing. What can the scientists say in terms of like the effects, because it's so complicated, the effects of sort of shifting resources so basically, what are the effects of climate change? How can we really model well, that? Because it's it's basically you're looking through the fog of uncertainty. Yeah. Because there are rising sea levels. How can we know what effect that has? Well, yeah. The, All the, we know, there'll be a lot of change. Yeah. Well, this is, I, I don't actually, I think the, the sea level one is a poor argument and I don't focus on it. What I mainly focus upon is the, the weather patterns. 
Okay. And if you look at, like we've got the, the, the wheat belt in America goes through what, Idaho and, and countries, places like that. And you've got an incredibly deep topsoil. Ukraine is another classic example. The depth of the topsoil in Ukraine is remarkable. And that's the wheat bowl of, of Europe. And that requires both the right temperature for growing wheat and the right rainfall for growing wheat. Now, when we look at the models that uh, climate scientists are building of, of, of that, you have pretty much your ultimate foundation is, is the Lorenz model of, of turbulent flow. And of course, that's, that's the first model in which we saw chaos theory, complexity, mm-hmm. that beautiful, simple model, three variables, three parameters, an incredible complexity out of the system. Uh, but, and what that meant was you also had an exponential decay in the accuracy of your model over time. Mm-hmm. So if you have, if you're accurate to a, a thousand decimal places, then in a thousand days, you'll have no data whatsoever because each time you're losing an order of magnitude of accuracy. Okay, So that's the point about the inability to predict for the very long future. But what you can just say, well, there's a prediction horizon. If we're close enough to the, if our, if our statistical measurement of where we are is close enough to where we actually are and our forecast horizon is narrow enough to, to not extrapolate too far, then for this prediction forward, we can make a reasonable fist of predicting what the weather's going to be. And that's the foundation of meteorological, uh, the stuff we watch on TV. You know, the, most of the time, the forecasts are going to be correct these days. 40, 50 years ago, most of the time, the forecasts were wrong. So that's the, the background foundation to these GCMs. But even they've got to massively simplify the world. So you have this enormous sphere of where they might divide it down to 100 kilometre by 100 kilometre by 10 kilometre you know, cube, rectangles, whatever. Um, oblongs, that, that's how they're modelling the transition of weather from one location to another. So they've got a chunky vision of the planet, which they have to. They can't model it now down to the last molecule. So you're well, losing. Not yet, right? It's not, getting no, better, 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 better. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's that's just too much processing power. But you, you, you're going to have some confined. You can't go. I mean, if you look at the models to do the weather, they used to be of that 100 kilometer, I think they're about 10 kilometer grids now. I don't know. But so the processing powers let us get more and more precise that way. I do know that the models now include chemical mixing that occurs above cities. Yeah, They've added that complexity to them over time. So you're looking at the increasingly accurate models, the weather patterns, the effect they have on agriculture, yeah. on food. Yeah, And you're, you're saying that there's a lot of possibilities in which that's going to be really destructive to society and, and on, what, on the if, food yeah. production side. And if you have that increase in temperature, they're going to get a change in precipitation. And it could mean that where the rainfall and the sunshine are adequate for growing wheat is an area where there's no topsoil. Mm-hmm. So like a, a huge part of the models, the, the models the economists use, which only use temperature, don't include precipitation. They predict that a large amount of the wheat, of the wheat output of the world is going to occur in Siberia, in okay. the frozen tundra. What about so that that's a straightforward criticism of oversimplified models? Yeah. What about the idea that we innovate our way out of it? So uh, there's totally new. What is there? There's a, a a silly poor example at this time, perhaps, but lab-grown meat, sort of uh, engineered food. So a completely shifting uh, source of. Uh, 
of food for, for civilization. So therefore alleviating some of the pressure on agriculture. Uh, that comes down to the difference that Elon makes between, in a, uh, between uh, producing a prototype and, produ- and mass producing the pr- yeah. prototype. You can, you can develop the idea very rapidly to put that into production on the scale that's necessary to replace what we're currently doing. Six years. Yeah, and we haven't got years. We've got, we might have decades. We certainly haven't got centuries. Um, so in the time frame we've got, I can't see that engineering going from prototype to production levels to predate, replace what we're currently doing in the stable environment they're currently destroying. What do you think about the sort of the catastrophic predictions that people that have thought, have written about climate, have made in the past that haven't come to, to That's be That's mainly, true. unfortunately, involving Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb. Mm-hmm. and the predictions Paul was making. So a few individuals or the one individual in that case. Yeah. So I'm mostly playing devil's advocate yeah, yeah, in this yeah. conversation and enjoying doing so. Um, I do think uh, I'm in agreement with the majority of the scientific community. Yeah. Uh, but you still see that argument made. I still see the argument made. And I also am a little bit worried about the arrogance and the ineffectiveness of the arrogance. This is so, the problem. <laughs> it's ineffective. And, and that's... That's what worries me because it's all been um, put into the sort of you know, sea level rise, um, temperature changes. Uh, it's it's not put into the fragility of the system in which we currently live, and the Earth will survive. And there's a wonderful science fiction book called "The Earth Abides" mm-hmm. about a, a world in which humans get wiped out, there's only a tiny band left, and then the Earth reasserts itself. So the Earth's going to survive us. Will we survive what we do to the Earth? That's the question. And my feeling is that we have underplayed the extent to which the civilizations we've built have depended upon a relatively stable climate. And it's then there's that that turning point in the maximum, in the global average temperature that we evolved right on the top of it. And if we had done nothing... We could find that heading back down towards another ice age could equally destroy the possibility of sedentary life. But we, for example, if we'd never develop, developed fossil fuel-based industries, uh, we, we'd never built uh, superphosphate, so our population would never have reached one billion people, uh, and we were still living like fairly sophisticated animals, but you know, like 17th century level of load on the planet. Then we would have gone down that decline. And the approaching ice age would have started to wipe out our our farming areas. The glaciers would have encroached, and we would have been driven out of like an agricultural sedentary civilization by that change. So it's just the fact that we evolved uh, on this stable period in in the overall temperature cycle of the planet, and that stability is something which just reflects there's a turning point in a in a, the regular cycle of Malachevich cycle. I think it's called. I've forgotten the actual name, but it's a cycle caused by you know, change in the Earth's orbit around the sun, uh, reflectivity and so on. That that cycle, it's just that tiny top bit that we evolved in. So what we should have done, so that's, that's really useful for us. We should stay at that level. Now, if we hadn't done it, we'd go back down here and that'd be the end of our civilization by an ice age. Instead, we're going up here really rapidly. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're causing a change in temperature compared to that, long-term cycle, 100,000 times faster. So, yeah, I mean, my my biggest worry is uh, even subtle changes in climate might result pressure in geopolitical pressures that 
that then lead to nuclear war. And that's, yeah, I mean, there's, there's an argument that's actually behind, to some extent, not the Ukraine war so much, but the Arab Spring, the, the wars in Syria, which partially has led to what's happening in Ukraine. So, And our weapons are getting more and more powerful and more and more destructive. More and more nations are having these destructive yeah. weapons. And now we're entering cyber space where it's even easier to be destructive. And hyperbaric weapons, which didn't exist in the Second World War. So, you know, you don't need nuclear weapons to have, you know, catastrophic attacks on each other. So, yeah, it's incredibly scary that that the warlike side of human nature could be and extremely enhanced by climate breakdown. So, in this world, on a happy note... <laughs> Uh, I don't know how we went from Marxism and Stalinism to uh, ecology, but all those are beautiful, complex systems. Uh, <laughs> what uh, is the best form of government, would you say? On the We talked about the economics of mm -hmm. things. Um, you ran for office, so you care about politics too. <laughs> how can politics, what political systems can help us here? I think we first of all have to appreciate we're one species on our planet out of millions, and as the intelligent species, we should be enabling a harmonious life for those other species as well. Can we actually linger on that? What is, you mentioned that we need to acknowledge the value of life yeah. on Earth. You know, can we integrate uh, the labor theory of value? Can we integrate into that the value of life? Um, so there's human life. I, I think and if, you, life. if you if you take like that that structure that I talked about of Marx's use value exchange value dialectic, the foreground background that only exists that only works because we're exploiting the free energy we find in the universe. Mm -hmm. There could be no pr production system without free energy, which is a you know the first law of thermodynamics. That there exists. is free lunch. Well, after all, and it's grounded in the energy that's provided to us by Well, the yeah, that's the free lunch. That's what we're, we're exploiting. It's the only free lunch we yeah. get. You know Ginsburg's summary of the laws of thermodynamics, don't you? Alan no, Ginsburg. What's said, that? The, 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 the laws of thermodynamics are summarized. A, you can't win. Okay. Uh -huh. B, you can't break even. Yep. C, you can't leave the game. Nice, okay. yeah. Beautiful summary. Okay. Beautiful summary. Okay, uh, but the fact that it exists in the first place is the free lunch. Okay, so we're exploiting the free lunch, but to be able to do it, we can't put waste back into that system so much that it undermines the free lunch, and that's what we've been doing. And once you respect the fact that we have to living on on the biosphere, the planet we're actually on, uh, we have to enable that biosphere to survive us, because of it doesn't survive us, we won't survive it disappearing. And there's not that realization in humanity in general. And uh, when you say the value of life, you know, all the different living organisms on Earth are, are part of that biosphere. Yeah. So in order to maintain the biosphere, we have to respect, like, pragmatically speaking, what that means is actually respecting all of life on Earth, even the mosquitoes? Uh, I've got some of no. <laughs> <laughs> so I personally... Parasites. I mean, we are, we are a parasite. When you look Humans. at it, we're, we're the mosquitoes of the, human, of, 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 the, of, the, of the large organizations. 
You've, if you're a fan of the Matrix movies at all? Sure. Okay, you know the scene where Asians... Look what I'm wearing. I absolutely. Mean, I was wondering what the inspiration was. I was thinking... It's not is, really is, inspiration. Is it, huh? We are living in a simulation. Okay. And okay. I have a conversation offline to have with you about that. Okay. You've well, been look, misbehaving, and we're going to have to put you back in line. So what? what's Agent Smith says when he's got uh, Morpheus in his possession? He said, I've been trying to classify your species... I've decided you're a virus. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Now, there's truth to that we have intruded into everything. Okay. We've taken over every element of the of the biosphere, and and we th think we can continue doing that. And the thing is, we're breaking that. We're exploiting it so much, we're breaking it down. And Eo, I think it's Eo Wilson who argued for the fifty percent rule. He believed that we should reserve fifty percent of the planet for non-human species. In other words, we make 50% of it off limits. Mm -hmm. Humans cannot go there. And we just let that evolve as it does. And then we control the other 50%. I think he's probably giving too much to us. I think we should actually save like 20%, 25% max. And the rest of the planet, we let life go on and evolve as it does without our interference, without our dominance. Now, that's neither a democratic system nor an authoritarian one. It's one which starts off with saying we the first thing humans have to do is respect life itself. Okay, so would we do that? We haven't done it, obviously. I don't think the Soviets would have done it if we had a generally Soviet system. We haven't done it under a capitalist. Uh, we continue intruding. So we, we, I think we have to go through something like a Star Trek, a Star Trek, you know, catastrophic 200 years to realise that ultimately if we're going to survive as a species, we have to respect life in general. And then that means we parts of parts of the planet we can no longer touch. While we also try to maintain the planet at the temperature that we found it in what we now call the Anthropocene. Okay. Um, so politically, how, we, we have to have, like in, in many ways what native societies often have a vision of the cycle of life, not this exponential progression we've developed over the last 250 years. Um, and again, I'll use another movie, the Avatar type respect for the cycle of life. We need to have that as part of our innate nature. And then on top of that, the political system comes out. Now that political system has to be one that lets us feel like we have a say in the direction of society, while that part is sacrosanct, okay, we can't touch it. But we also, because we are now living with so many challenges created by our own civilization, I mean, the main threat to the existence of human civilization is the existence of human civilization. It's both a feature and a bug. Yeah, and therefore, we need to have people who can understand complex systems making those decisions. Now, that means it isn't a political system as much as it is an appreciation that the world is a complex system, and therefore effects which we think are direct effects will actually come through in oblique fashion. And we cannot, uh, there's no simple linear progression from where we are to where we want to be. So you have to see how everything feeds together in a systemic way. And that's why, well, one reason I designed the software I'm wearing the t-shirt for now, mm -hmm. Minsky, is to have, it's nowhere near to this scale, I hope it one way will be, but something which means we can bring together all that complexity, all those systems and perceive them on an enormous screen where we have all the various interacts and we can see what are potential futures. And and that then guides us. So it isn't a case of democracy and, you know, uh, our side wins a vote and therefore 
we ban abortion or we don't, or you know, whatever else happens. It's seeing what the, respecting the fact that we're in a complex system and being uncertain about the consequences and not making the, the bold uh, expansionary ideas that we've been doing. So like being a little bit more and so, uh, humble. Humble. Th- th- humble is a good word. But wouldn't you like to apply that same humility both to the considerations of the, uh, the the pros of capitalism and and to the catastrophic view of the effects of climate change. Yeah, and also, like I think we we can we can afford to be bold in space, and that's one reason I respect the practical vision of Musk and the so far impractical vision of Bezos. That if we're going, if we look for the very far future, the only way we can continue expanding our knowledge of the universe is to move our civilization. <laughs> the productive yeah. side of off the planet, off site, back up. Yeah. So, can you actually linger on this? So, let's actually talk about this. So, first yeah. of all, you have the new book, uh, humbly named, uh, named "The New <laughs> Economics: A Manifesto." The publisher chose the title. Yes. No, but I'm I'm joking. But uh, maybe I will ask you about why manifesto. But mm. we'll go through some of the ideas in yeah. this book. We have been already. Uh, so some of it is embracing the fact that the economy, our world, our mind is a complex system. Yep. So this T-shirt that you're wearing, yep, check it out. Yeah, is uh, it around. Piece of software. Yep. We, just, I'll, I'll do that if you like. Th- there, you there you go. There you go. You're wearing the life. Okay, look. What is, okay, that's what he's talking about. Infomercial. <laughs> so there's a T-shirt that says Minsky. Um, after not 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 my Minsky. It's your Minsky. Not Hyman. Oh, sorry, no, Hyman Minsky, not uh, Marvin Minsky. Not Marvin Minsky, yeah, right. Yeah. So that's, so AI Minsky is, yep. is Marvin, and then uh, Harmon, uh, it all rhymes. So stability is free open source system dynamic software invented by Mr. Steve Keen, uh, coded by Russell Standish. It's on SourceForge. <laughs> it's destabilizing. Stability is destabilizing. So that's sort of embracing the the complex aspect of it. Yeah. yeah so how can you model the economy? What are some of the interesting, whether detailed or high level, big picture ideas behind your efforts with Minsky? Okay, Minsky. Um, the meaning the software, the modeling software that the, that models the dynamic system. Your base, that is basically, the what Minsky is doing is system dynamics modeling. So it's if anybody's used Stellar or Vensim or Simulink, um, then they've used exactly the same family of software that Minsky is part of. So I didn't invent that. That was invented by Jay Forrester, who's one of the great intellects, one of the great engineers uh, in American history. And the idea of, of, of Forrester's system was uh, complex interactions. Mm-hmm. So he was doing his work in the 50s. Um, uh, he, he, if people don't don't know Forrester's work, he actually built the models of the um, uh, the, the mathematics for the gun turrets on American warships in the Second World War, mechanical systems, obviously. So he had to work out a you know how to give a feedback system that meant when the boat rolled in one direction, the the turret did not roll the other way. All that stuff was his work. So marvelous engineering. And then he realized if you want to look at a even like a factory, a factory is a complex system. 
And so you get cycles generated out of the interaction between different components of the factory that he was first involved in taming, that he built the software to model complex interactive systems. So Minsky is that. The thing that Minsky adds, which is unique, is the godly table. And that's the double-entry bookkeeping, so you can model the financial system. Godly the economist. Godly the economist, Win Godly, another great, great man. So there, there's like this, so you, you're modeling, it it's like a state diagram. Yeah, fundamentally. It's actually, it's just circuit diagrams. It's exactly what engineers have been using for decades, almost a century. Uh, so you're using a circuit diagram to model the economy. And that's uh, that's the, so other factories have done it. What they, what they haven't had in the circuit diagram is a way of handling the dynamics of the financial system. So what the godly table does is bring it um, financial flows as being uh, everything goes from somewhere and ends up somewhere. So you have a, a positive and a negative if you're looking on the liability side, uh, a positive and a positive if, or a negative and a negative if you're looking at assets and liabilities side. And Minsky gets the accounting right for that. So you can do an enormous complex model uh, looking at the economy financially from the point of view of a dozen different actors in the economy and know that the mathematics is right, even though what you're building is a set of differential equations, which might be 50 differential equations with 350 terms in them. If you get the godly tables right, you know the mathematics is correct. So that's the main innovation that Minsky adds. And you're operating there at the macroeconomics level. Yeah, it's definitely macro. It's top-down. It's not, it's not agent-based. And then this, I'm just open on a random page that I think is very relevant here. Uh, the process, this is referring to Minsky, not the software, maybe the software, I don't know. Mm. The process can be captured in an extremely simple causal chain. Capital determines output, output determines employment, the rate of employment determines the rate of change of wages, output minus wages and interest payments determines profit, the profit rate determines the, there's a very nice circuit here. Yeah. The profit rate determines the level of investment, which is the change in capital, which takes us back to the beginning of this causal chain and the difference between investment and profits determines the change in private debt. And there's some nice, uh, the Keen-Minsky model and the intermittent route to chaos on page 86 of your book. Mm. These are, do these come from the software? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I first did that in Mathematica uh, back in 1992, August 1992. Um, Mathematica is another amazing piece of software. Yeah, and I find it, it's very much a programmer's approach to mathematics. I prefer like a program called MathCAD, which mm. is what I'm using for all my, uh, when I do, do my mathematics on the, Computer, I write CAD, in MathCAD. CAD or huh? CAB? CAD. Okay. It's been ruined by bad management. They chucked out all the good engineers, and I'm still using a version which is 12 years old. If only engineers ruled the world. If only engineers, rather than this particular case, there was a bunch of marketers for CAD software agreed. I'm definitely a fan of engineers. What are the plots that we're looking at here? Growth rate, private debt ratio, employment versus wages, employment versus debt, income distribution. So what, this is across years, like different trade-offs. Yeah. Is there something interesting to say about the plots and the insights from those plots that are yeah, generated yeah. Um, the software? That's um, that, that's particular parameter values to give that outcome. But what happened when I first simulated the model, I took a model by a guy called Richard Goodwin, who's one of the great neglected economists, uh, American Marxist, mathematical Marxist. And what he did was build a model of cycles. And uh -huh. he, he actually wrote a paper called, um, uh, it's, it's only about a five-page paper published in a, in, a, in a book and a very, very obscure conference paper. And what he was doing was trying to build a model of Marx. Okay, 
So if you, you wrote it in 1967 and it was putting into mathematical form a model that Marx came up with in 1867. So it was a centenary birthday present to Marx. And what Marx had argued in chapter 25, I think, of Volume 1 of Capital, Section 3, he, um, he built a verbal model of a cyclical system and it's quite out of character with the rest of the book. So when you read Volume 1 of Capital, people think Marx has got a commodity money view of money. He doesn't at all. He simply did, he, the idea was he had like an onion. You start off on the middle level and you ignore the outer layer, then you bring the outer layer in and so on and so forth. Anyway, in this model, in, in Volume 1 of Capital, he normally just assumed workers got a subsistence wage. That's it. But in this little chapter, he said that if, um, if the economy is, effectively, if the economy is booming, then workers will demand wage rises, okay? And the wage rises will cut into the profit so that capitalists will not get the level of profit they're expecting. Therefore, they will invest less and the economy will slump. And the slump will mean workers become unemployed and have to accept wage cuts. And it was a model of a cyclical economy. And as it happens, Marx spent his later years trying to learn enough calculus to be able to model it himself mathematically. And he never managed. There's, there's Marx's and mathematical notes on calculus, which are quite fun to read. And if you have a mathematical background. Did he get far? Uh, no, far? he got too caught up in the whole philosophy and he never really got to build the model. Hmm. But what, what um, Goodwin realized was a predator-prey model. Okay, the lock the Volterra model was the basis of the, the idea. So what the idea is you have a, have a prey, like a and the the example that that Lochter actually used initially was grass. Grass is the prey, and then you have a predator, and the predator were cows. So you start off with a very few cows, and lots of grass, and then because of lots of grass, the numbers of cows grow, and then because the cows grow, they start to eat the grass. So the grass runs out, so the cows starve, and you get a cycle. And what Lochter was amazed by was that it, the cycles were persistent. They, they didn't die out. So Goodwin got that vision, and he then built a predator-prey model. And I, first of all, read Goodwin and really found it really hard to follow his writing. It was, he's not a very good writer. But a guy called John Blatt, who was a professor of mathematics at New South Wales University, wrote a brilliant explanation of Goodwin's model in a book called Dynamic Economic Systems. And I read that. It was superb. And he said a way you could extend this was to include finance. So I thought, well, okay, what I'm going to have is that what Goodwin presumed is capitalists invest all their profits. Okay, so you get a boom when they're when uh, there's a a high rate of profit because they invest all that money, and then a slump when there's low profit because depreciation will wipe away capital and you'll go boom and slump. So I simply added in, well, capitalists will invest more than their uh, profits during a boom, but less than their profits during a slump. And that therefore means they had to borrow money to finance the gap and pay interest on the debt. So I ended up with a model with just three system states, the income share, the wages distribution of income between workers, capitalists, and bankers, uh, the level of employment, and the level of private debt. And those three equations are fundamentally like going from the Lochter-Volterra model with just two equations, and therefore you get a fixed cycle, to the Lorenz model where you have three. And therefore, what I got out of it was a chaotic outcome. So what you're seeing is a, a manifestation of chaos, complexity in that those plots. But the fascinating, one of the many fascinating parts about it was that uh, as the level of private debt rose, I, in my model, I had capitalists being the only ones who borrowed. 
but the people who paid for the high level of private debt were the workers. The rising banker's share mm-hmm. corresponded exactly to a falling worker's share. So you're, you can infer from that that the workers are the ones paying. Effectively, the workers end up paying for it. They get a lower level of wages. And it's, the basic dynamic is that capitalists, uh, when you have a three social class system, your income goes between workers, capitalists, and bankers. Now, in the system that Goodwin did, they're just workers and capitalists. So if workers' share rose, profit capital share had to fall. Okay? But when you have three social classes, then capital share can remain constant while workers fall and bankers workers falls and bankers rise. So that's what actually happened. Uh, because capitalists, the, the simple way I modeled it was there's a certain rate of profit at which capitalists invest all their profits. Above that, they borrow more. Below that, they pay off debt. So what would happen is when you got back to that point, then the level of investment would be a precise share of GDP. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you get a precise rate of economic growth. But if there was a higher percentage going to bankers and offset by a lower share going to workers, it didn't affect the capitalists. So what you get is the cycles sort of diminish for a while because uh, there's, as, so there's the other, there's the, the, so the income distribution effect is important. So the, 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 the workers pay for the increasing level of debt. But the other side of it was that the cycles would diminish for a while. Now, what you get is a period of diminishing cycles, then leading to rising cycles. And technically, this is known as the uh, uh, Pommer-Manneville route to chaos. And it's one particular element of Lorenz's equations of fluid dynamics. So what they found was in, in examining laminar flow in a fluid, you have a period where the laminar flow got more laminar, and then suddenly it'll start to get less laminar and go turbulent. And this is this is what actually goes on in the model. So in my model of Minsky, so what you have is a period where there's big booms and cycles, and then as the debt level rises, the booms and slums get smaller, and that looks like what neoclassical economists call the great moderation. So I, when I first modeled this in 1982, I finished up my paper, which was published in 95, with what I thought was a nice rhetorical flourish, saying the, the chaotic dynamics of this paper should warn us against regarding a period of relative stability in a capitalist economy as anything more than a lull before the storm. Now, I thought it was a great piece of rhetoric. I didn't think it was going to fucking happen. But it did, because you had this period from 1990 through to 2007 where there were diminishing cycles, and the neoclassicals labelled that the great moderation and they took the credit for it. They thought that the economy was being managed by them to a lower rate of inflation, a lower level of unemployment, less instability over time, and they literally took credit for it. And I was watching that and thinking, that's like my model running, and I'm I'm scared as shit that there'll be a breakdown. I ended up not um, working in the area for a while because I wrote Debunking Economics, and I got involved in a fight over the uh, modelling of competition in neoclassical theory. That took me away for about four or five years. And then I got asked to do a court case uh, in 2005, end of 2005. And I used Minsky as my framework for arguing that somebody who was involved in predatory lending should be able to get out of the debt they were in. And I explained Minsky's theory, and I used this throwaway line of saying, debt levels, private debt, have been rising exponentially. And then I thought, well, I can't, as an expert, just make a claim like that. I've got to check the data. And the debt ratio was rising exponentially. And I thought, holy shit, we're in for a financial crisis. And somebody has to warn about it. And at least in Australia, I was that somebody. 
So can you, given this chaotic dynamics idea, can you talk about the crises ahead of us in the future? So one of the things, I mean, it's a fundamental question of economics. Is economics about understanding the past or predicting the future? Because uh, you can construct models that do poetic, like in 95, poetic, mm. you know. Illusion. Yeah, and then you can, you know, watch years come fly by and some of the predictions in retrospect that you make turn out to be true. Mm. But, you you know, you all kinds of gurus throughout history have done that kind of thing. Um, and you can call yourself right and forget all the many times you've been wrong. Let's talk about the future. What kind of mm. stuff, you, you mentioned about the importance of the biosphere, but what other crises are ahead of us? That, uh, this, that that a chaotic dynamics view allows us to predict well, what, and be what really about. I saw coming out of it, with, leaving aside the ecological, wasn't a crisis, it was stagnation. Because what we got out of the, the crisis was caused by a rising level of private debt. Okay? Now you reach a peak level where the willingness to take on debt collapses. And so you go to a period where debt is rising all the time. So credit, which is the annual change in debt, and that's credit is part of aggregate demand and aggregate income. So credit goes from positive to negative, and that causes a slump. So, that, what, what, uh, so can you describe why that causes a slump? Okay. So when you, we, credit goes to negative. Yeah. If you ask Paul Krugman, he'll tell you credit plays no role in aggregate demand. Okay. Uh, give me a second. Yeah. Uh, credit plays no role in, in aggregate, aggregate demand. demand. So the vision, credit. the vision that the neoclassicals have for the banking system is what they call loanable funds. Is Paul Krugman, by the way, the uh, the knight at the front of the army that is the neoclassical economist? Yeah, fundamentally. Okay. Sure. Okay. Um, uh, he he's he's politically reasonable, which makes him more dangerous than those that aren't. He's politically, yeah, there's quite a lot of people that would disagree with that characterization of Paul Krugman as he's politically you reasonable. See, you should see the people behind The alternatives. It. <laughs> okay. 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 Fair enough. Okay. Um, that's not a negative or positive statement. That's just, he can be feisty as well. Oh, he can. He can. Yeah. But he's like the human face of neoclassical economics. Sure. It doesn't deserve having a human face. It's sure. anti-human theory. Right. But Tell he's me what the you human really face. think. I got you. All right. Well, yeah. so, yeah, uh, so, but the, the cr credit does not have any effect on ag aggregate demand. demand in their and, model. And you're saying that's not the case at it's all. It's absolutely crucial to aggregate demand. So what they model is, again, the example of you lending to me or vice versa. If I lend money to you, I can spend less, you can spend more. Okay, so credit credit is the change in debt. So if, there's, if I lend money to you, then there's a level of private debt rises. Okay, so there's an increase in credit but that increase in credit comes at an expense of my spending power. So you can spend what I've lent you, but I can't spend what I've lent you. So credit cancels out. But when you look at, that's learnable funds. But in the real world, and the Bank of England has said this is the real world and the textbooks are wrong, categorically in 2014, um, when the bank lends, it adds to its asset side and says, you owe us more money, and it adds to its liability side and says, here's the money in your bank account. Now, you spend that money. So what happens when you do your, your sums, credit is part of aggregate demand and aggregate income. Right. And that's something I first solved in 2019, I think. 2000 is only recently proved it mathematically. So what that means is credit 
can, is a component of aggregate demand, and credit is also very volatile. So like consumption demand never goes negative. Investment demand never goes negative, but credit can go from positive to negative. And when you take a look at the long run of uh, American history after the Second World War, there was no period uh, until 2007 where credit was negative. It was a positive component of GDP, a positive number. And therefore, when you do it as a percentage of GDP, it was a positive percentage of GDP. It peaked at 16% of GDP in 2006. 2007, it fell to minus 5% in 2008, 2009. So you had a 20% of GDP turnaround in aggregate demand. Now, when you plot that against unemployment, the correlation of credit to unemployment uh, across the period from about 1990 to 2010 is about minus 0.9, okay? enormous negative correlation. Now, according to the neoclassicals, it could be close to zero. Mm -hmm. Empirically, it's bleedingly obvious it's not, and it applies to every country in the world that had a financial crisis at that period. So it's it's bleedingly obvious in the data, and they ignore it because credit's not part of their model. And you're saying it's causation. It is causal. Today, we said there's extremely high inflation. Mm. What... uh, does inflation, what role does inflation play in this picture? Is a little bit of inflation good? We talked yeah. about money creation um, in, at the beginning. What's a little bit of inflation good or bad? A lot of inflation good or bad? How concerned a, are you a about? Is, a little bit is good for a simple reason that, like, again, it's taken me a while to get my head around around this. But if you think about how people say, what are the functions of money? They say money, it's a unit of count, account, yeah. so you're measuring. It's a means of exchange. Okay. And it's a store of value. Okay. Now, yes, okay, it has those three roles, but the last one is contradictory to the previous two. Because, and this is where we see this with the Bitcoin phenomenon, if you want to hang on to money as a store of value, then if prices are falling, the value of money is rising. And it's actually in your interests as a store of value to hang on to it and not spend it. Okay. So that contradicts its role as a means of exchange. Now, if you have money which depreciates, and this was actually tried in, this, in the Austrian town of Wargel during the, second, before, during the Great Depression, if you have money that depreciates, then if you don't use it, you lose it fundamentally. So it has a high rate of circulation. So there's a, a monetary theorist called Silvio Gazelle, and he wrote this proposal that money should depreciate. And he was ridiculed and opposed and derided, but Keynes said he was a great intellect. And the mayor of the town of Wargall in in Austria during the Great Depression was facing an unemployment rate of 25% pretty much. Germany had the worst experience in the Great Depression in the world, as, as bad as America, slightly worse than America. And so he thought, how can I stimulate demand here? So he produced a script which could only be used for buying goods and services in Wargall. And uh, and could be used to pay your, your local rates, but it was depreciated by putting a stamp on the money if you didn't use it. So what happened was people would pay their rates. They they needed to pay the rates using this money. So the the script. So they used the script, and it because it depreciated, you'd use it rapidly. So people were using that money, this alternative to the Austrian shilling, and the economic activity in town took off, and unemployment fell to zero. 
and it was an absolute miracle, and if you loved a Wargill experiment, and the Austrian Central Bank sued them for establishing an alternative form of money and shut it down. Unemployment went back up to 25% again, and Austria voted, you know, what, 99 point, what was it, 99.6% for the Nazis, something crazy number like that when, yeah. when Hitler marched in. Yeah. So the Wargill experiment showed that a, a depreciating currency led to a high rate of circulation. But, of course, we're not talking Weimar Republic levels of inflation. So when you get that much inflation, and that's normally caused by as the as the as the Weimar inflation was caused by the reparation terms imposed on Germany, fundamentally by France at the Treaty of Versailles, they pay, paid a large part of that with just basically printing the notes, and you went into this crazy period of hyperinflation. So hyperinflation almost always occurs when there's a massive destruction of physical resources, and the monetary authority tries to paper literally over it, and then you get hyperinflation. That's total social breakdown. So a moderate level of inflation inspires the means of exchange usage of money, but undermines the store of value usage of money. And and that dilemma is why we have this antagonistic attitude towards inflation. Yeah, I mean, you're describing as a tension, but it's nevertheless is, like money is a store of value and a means of exchange. And I don't, you know, to push back, it's not necessarily that there's a tension, it's just that, depending on the dynamics of this uh, beautiful economic system of ours, it's used as one more than the other. Mm. If there's inflation, you're using it more for the uh, means of exchange. Mm. It's deflation, you're using more for store value. But that doesn't, I don't see that as a tension. That's just a, uh, how much you use it for those different, like. But it ends up saying that overall, the level of effective commerce a bit of inflation is a good thing because that's depreciating the money slightly and encourage its use. Yeah, but so the argument that uh, so Bitcoin folks use or gold standard the folks, yeah, the hodl, yeah. Well, the, the, again, hodl is not an argument. Uh, is that having an inflation of zero is actually achieving that balance? Yeah. Right? So like the yeah, but they're actually in favor of negative. They they wanted to appreciate rapidly, you know, and there's a decadently negative inflation. The the, the the you know value of the value of the money rising relative to commodities. That's what they want. That's the hodl philosophy. Well, that's more of like an investment. I don't know if that yeah, but that's see, more of investment philosophy than the fundamental principles of why they believe yeah. in, in cryptocurrency in yeah. the enforced scarcity is a model. The, the concern there is that when you print money, the public pol policy is detached from the actual, um, from value. Yeah, well, you get, I mean, this is, this is where, again, it matters to get money creation right, because the government's not the only money creator. Banks are as well, private banks. And, and if we obsess too much about limiting government money creation, what we end up getting if there is money creation going on, it's the private banks doing it, and you get an increase in private debt, and fundamentally, private debt and its collapse, uh, collapse of credit when it stops growing, that's the fundamental cause of financial crises. So, yeah, but the question is, what's the, what's the the cause for the the collapse of the? Uh, well, I think this is like the Austrian thinking leaves out the debt deflation, mm -hmm. and that's like. I think one of the most important papers ever written was by Irving Fisher called The Debt Deflation Theory of Great Depressions. Mm -hmm. Fisher was somebody who 
accepted the neoclassical vision. He wrote the pre-efficiency um, market hypothesis. Efficiency market hypothesis. He had a his 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 own PhD called the theory of interest, mm -hmm. and in that he argued effectively for a supply and demand analysis of the of the um, financial system. And he argued for equilibrium. He said when you're working with a a like a commodity market, then the sale and the uh, tra the transaction and the, and the exchange occur at the same point in time. Mm -hmm. When you're working with a financial market then the exchange occurs through time. <clears throat> so he's, he said he assumed that debts are repaid, all debts are repaid, and he assumed that equilibrium through time was an essential part of his assumption. This is, And then the Great Depression comes along, and he has become a major shareholder in rank Xerox because he invented the Rolodex. Mm -hmm. He's a tinkerer. And so he had taken out shares on margin, and he was worth about 100 million in modern terms when the Great Depression hit. And 90% of that was share market valuation. He'd taken out margin debt, just like everybody else. And with margin debt, you could put down $100,000 and buy a million dollars worth of shares. So you got this huge leverage into debt. Now, that when the financial crisis hit, the level of margin debt in America had risen from half a percent of GDP in 1920 to 13% of GDP in 1929. It then fell to zero again. That's why the stock market crash in 29 was so devastating, that scale of, of margin lending. And everybody was being wiped out. They were selling Rolls Royces for 20 quid. You know, that you literally have photographs showing people doing that because a margin call comes in, you've got to liquidate everything. Okay, so he said the, the danger is, is, is of a debt deflation is what we have to avoid. Okay, and that means you don't want too much private debt to accumulate and you don't want falling prices because the falling prices will amplify the impact of being insolvent to begin with. And that's what we saw in the Great Depression. It's partially what we saw in 2007, but we didn't have anything like the level of, of margin debt. Margin debt was reduced from 90% to 50% ratio after the Great Depression. Um, so there were limits on how bad it was in 2007. but the danger is still the period of deflation amplifies your debts, okay? And he's, he, he, I call it Fisher's paradox. He didn't write those terms himself, but he wrote a line saying the more debtors pay, the more they owe, okay? And this is because you're liquidating to try to meet your own debts. When you liquidate, the price level falls. You will end up having a lower level of monetary debt, but a higher level of debt when you deflate it using the price level. So the biggest danger in capitalism is the debt deflation, far more dangerous than inflation. And the cause of debt deflation is? Too much lending, too much bank lending, too much private money creation. And if you take a look at the 1920s, Calvin Coolidge explained the boom of the 1920s on his surplus. He said, my government running a surplus of 1% of GDP pretty much from 1922 through to 1930 is the foundation of our stability. It should be continued. What he didn't look at was that over that same time period, on average, Americans were borrowing 5% of GDP per year from the private banks. So you had a housing bubble at the beginning of the 1920s, which Richard Vague covers beautifully in the uh, a Brief History of Doom. And then you had this huge rise in margin debt as well, gigantic increase in margin debt. 
So all this borrowed money was being spent into the economy, and this is where credit becomes part of aggregate demand, mm -hmm. and it's both not just for goods and services, it's also for shares and houses and so on. So a huge valuation effect. But then when the margin debt turned around, when people would not take out margin debt anymore, the demand for margin debt disappeared, and then it was a, a, you know what we call badly a positive feedback loop. It's actually an amplifying feedback loop, right. and that caused a collapse. So what elements of that do you see today that we need to fix and how do we fix it? We have to regard the level of private debt as a target of economic policy just as much as the rate of inflation or the rate of unemployment. How do we, what, what is the moderate amount of private debt that's good? I would say something of the, anywhere between 30 and 70% of GDP. What is it, it currently? Uh, in America, it's 170%. Nice. Of GDP. Of GDP. Oh, that's nice. I've got, we will have to look after we talk, but I can show you the, the data in this. And it's, it, it is just this huge increase in private debt yeah. that caused, first of all, caused the boom, but then financing the credit causes, ultimately causes the slump. And so if we remove the rate level at which debt can reach and we stop speculative lending and base have a lending for both you know, innovation, invest, investment, and essential consumption items, we won't have the slump on the other side. We can we can get rid of financial instability. We can't stop financial cycles, but we can stop financial breakdown. And so we should really be focusing on the instability and getting that under control. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, as you point to your laptop, uh, my laptops, I have a lot of, of now, uh, how many computers do I have? But I have a lot of them, but my little Surface, whatever the heck this thing is, is getting definite size envy. Because your laptop, you said, is 18 something 18. inches. 18.4 inches. 18.4 inches. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think I've ever seen one that big. And I'll give the internet that one. <laughs> All right. Um, that's for the graphics. So it's a gaming laptop. It's, it's basically a, a desktop. Laptop. It probably weighs like 40 pounds. Right. You have to. Eight kilos? Eight kilos. Oh, so you reckon eight or. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. eight kilos. Uh, that's you know you're, you're you. You see the power supply for it? It's over there somewhere. The power supply weighs about twice as much as your laptop. Yeah, and it uh, you have to power it on with a crank. Pretty close. You have to like pull. It. <laughs> is, it, is it gas powered or is it coal? Or oh what? well, it's, it's, like it's a nuclear power station and nuclear. Yeah, and a nuclear diamond in the back there. <laughs> okay, so um, let me before I forget, just let me ask you about we've we've covered brilliantly. The, the the nuanced disagreements you have and the wisdom you've drawn from Karl Marx. But there's also, um, like you mentioned in popular discourse, um, a kind of a distorted use of different terms. And one of them is Marxism yeah. today. Is there something you could just speak to about, you know, increased use of that word? And is it misused? Does it concern you that there's a lot of actually young people that say they're, sort of proudly Marxist. Yeah. Uh, are they misusing the term? They are, are definitely concerned? misusing the term if they don't understand the use value, exchange value dialectic I went through earlier. Uh, so so if I could- And just, they don't. If I could just pause, the idea of socialism and Marxism as used in sort of popular lingo yeah. is basically, you know, um, a lot of people have a, a disproportionately hard life why can't we help them out? Why can't we be kind to our fellow man? Kind of, that's and, that's a short embodiment of an idea as opposed to some super complicated, uh, elaborate 
model of the economy and politics and all yeah. that kind of stuff. I mean, we could do that by using the insights that come out of modern monetary theory, yeah. which I've confirmed just using my simple Minsky models. And that is that, to use the term, usually a feature, not a bug, a government running a deficit is a feature of a well-functioning, mixed fiat credit economy, not a bug. The government should normally run a deficit because that's how the government creates money. Now, because we've had this obsession from mainstream economists of running a surplus, which is what caused the Great Depression, Calvin Coolidge doing it for eight years, because of that obsession, we've cut back on social services, we've cut back on health, we've cut back on education, we've cut back on infrastructure. Now, all that stuff predominantly affects the poor because the rich can afford to buy it themselves. So if we had a economy which realised the government should run a deficit, it's a feature, not a bug, of a fiat money system. And that's where Eon's made one mistake recently. Okay, we're not going back to founded first principles. That deficit enables you to provide an, enough of a decent standard of living for those who don't come out on top in the, the capitalist game. Mm-hmm. And with that, you wouldn't have the angst of the young people. Now, we still have the climate parameters within which we have to survive. But a decent level of government funding would mean the angst that you get where people say, I want to be a Marxist, and they've got a what I call a cardboard cutout version of Marx in their minds. That wouldn't be happening. So it's, it's potential to have a, a, a good society where the government runs a deficit that finances the, the needs of the poor, where the rich get enough to you know, indulge and take care of themselves. And you you don't get this breakdown. If, if, you, if you try to cause the government running a surplus, then the burden of that is borne by the poor, middle class and poor, and that will lead to the angst we're now seeing. Beautiful. That was a, uh, that was a beautiful whirlwind exploration of all of economics and economics history. Uh, let me ask you what you tweeted, I think. Yeah. Uh, we are the opposite of ants, individually intelligent, collectively stupid. We need to develop systems thinking fast to counter our limitations. Um, that's really interesting. Do, do you really believe we're individually intelligent and collectively stupid? I do. So um, can you elaborate on, I mean, some of that is just cheeky tweets, but. It was a, it was, it was, it's a cheeky tweet I've had from my mind for a long time. It just, it's one that actually went moderately viral, not enough, but moderately yeah. viral for me. Um, but nevertheless, what if you could analyze it as if it's some deep, profound statement yeah. you made in a book? Well, the, the reason is that we are like incredibly individually intelligent. Things like these devices we're playing with now. That's the creation of individual that's, that's minds. Cre- creative individual mind and a collective labor over centuries that led to this level of technology. And that has to be respected. It's in- incredible stuff. Uh, but at the same time, I think what humans are, if you want to distinguish humans from other species on the planet, we don't weave webs, okay? Uh, we don't make bird calls. What we do is we share beliefs. Yeah. Okay. Now you don't think that's awesome. That's a. You it, don't think that's a catalyst for intelligence. Yeah, it is a catalyst. But what it means is, uh, we can delude ourselves as much as we can inform ourselves. So, because we share beliefs, we can do things in a collective way. And if we believe that you know we can, if we take the incantations of the witch doctors and we, and we happen to have a couple of spears and and things, we can go and attack the local uh, herd, a tribe of uh, of of, of uh, lions and drive them out, and we become the dominant species. So it worked at the stage where we were in competition with other species on the planet. Now that we're the dominant species, then our beliefs get in the way. 
So you agree with uh, with Einstein, who said uh, the only there are only two things that are infinite: the universe and human stupidity. And he wasn't sure about the universe. And he wasn't sure about the right. <laughs> That's right. And he wasn't sure about the universe. Uh, yeah. So you think that the collective? I mean, we there's an infinity to the destructive and the the stupid, the inhumane that's possible when we humans get together. But it feels like there's more trajectories, there's more possibility for creation. There are, I and mean, I think that's why we have to, I say, if we if we were built around the idea that our role as a species is to maintain and extend life on the planet and, and if not find it elsewhere, then seed it elsewhere, yeah. then that is a vision which makes us creative and confines the worst elements of our capacities to share beliefs. So I, I, that's what I my hope is, that we'll reach that stage. But I think we've overshot it so badly that my real fear is we'll end up blaming technology for the type of world we find ourselves living in in the next 20 to 50 years. So you think technology is going to be one of the, part of the solution? Part of the solution, yeah. But it, it's but if we go through and blame it, which is quite possible, yeah, we will blame the technology rather than blaming too much of the technology. And the too much comes down to what economists have told us that we can just continue consuming infinitely on a finite planet. And Kenneth Balding said that beautifully. He said the if somebody believes that you can have exponential growth on a finite planet, they're either mad or they're an economist. <laughs> so you're uh, you made a long journey for which I'm deeply honored from from um, Sydney, this distant place. The Antipodes. There's myth. You've got to go there one day. You'd enjoy it. It's, I, I will. I'm afraid if if I go there, I will stay forever. And so no, it's a bit too. You know, there's there's more vitality back in this economy. So you'd come back. Okay, maybe. You know, I'm not a fan of the economy or money or any of that. Nature calls me let me uh so i'm i'm honored that you make that trip you've also said that you while you're here in austin you're going to um go to um this american factory uh that makes cars Mm -hmm. here in austin and also visit starbase so let me ask you about expanding out into the universe is that something that that excites you yeah you mentioned about the economics of it do you think um does what, what do you think Marx would think about this? Like, what economically speaking, what what is this? Is it a good thing? I, I think it's a vital. It, we can have capitalism in outer space far more successfully than we can have it on the planet, because we don't face when we dump the waste, it ends up in the sun. Not a problem. Okay, um, so it, it means the potential. We we don't undermine our own productive capacity if we're doing it in outer space. So the destructive element of waste. Is, uh, has a lesser impact in our lesser, yeah. I mean, who cares if we throw a bit of our iron back into the sun again? It'd take a fair bit of it to turn it into a, what would be the next stage? It'd be a red giant. Um, and we have to get away because if there's a red giant at some stage, it'll, it'll the sun will head out past the orbit of Mars, I think, certainly past the orbit of Earth. So to have the longevity of, 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 of not just human life, the life that evolved on this planet, we have to be able to take it off planet ultimately. So if you think in the really long term, then it's our responsibility, if we're going to maintain life, is to get is to establish life off the planet. What do you think about robots and AI as mm. part of the expanding out into the Oh universe? yeah, we have to. I mean, you, you, that's, that, that ends labor. 
you can't you know you can't go for a, you know, your daily joint can't be from here to the asteroid belt and back again for dinner with your family. Uh, so we, production would be entirely mechanized. There'd be have to be a handful of people who service the machines. But so it's about production and automation. What about elements of consciousness that make humans so special? That's, what, what about that persisting within the machine? That I mean, I'm still a skeptic about us ever being able to create a, a machine which is truly conscious. If I can throw my, it's only two cents worth. That would really piss off Karl Marx, by the way. If we create machines that are conscious. Exactly. This is actually part of the, there's two good logical arguments against the labor theory of value. One of what it becomes, machines become intelligent. Yeah. And the other was that if the declining rate of profit applies in socialism, it'll apply as a rate of accumulation, in, sorry, in capitalism, it'll apply as a rate of socialism as well. And a guy called Khalid made that argument. So his argument was just unsound. But yeah, intelligent machines would completely screw Marx up, you know? Yeah. Uh, but do you, do you not like that world? Where machines have not only intelligence but, but a soul. consciousness, a soul. Yeah. And I, you know, I know that's one of your interests, one of your potential endeavors. And I, the, the Kurzweil idea that there's some singularity we're approaching as we just get increasing processing power. It's not processing power; it's imagination. And I think whatever if, the heck that means, huh? Whatever, whatever the heck that means, yeah. I mean, you you would have had imaginative insights. I mean, your papers on uh, like in in, in um, motor in, in automating motoring between the hyper intelligent machine or the machine human interface, where the standards can be lower for the machine and higher for the human. Okay, that's an insight you would have had at some point, mm -hmm. and then you've worked it further. So I've had insights like that as well, and I have no idea where they come from. They just hit me in the head, and I write them down, and and they they solve a problem that I didn't even know my mind was working on. Okay. So how can we get a machine to do that? And I do not know the answer, but one thing I think is a potential is I think, I think we have to create AI that has feelings, AI that wants to survive. Because if you think how our intelligence evolved, it's on this planet in a struggle between predator and prey. And intelligent became a survival technique. I find the ideas of Ernest Becker with denial of death really powerful, which mm. is that humans will not only have emotions and are trying to survive, they're able to ponder out in the distant future their mortality. Yes. And that is a driving force for even greater creation that animals are able to do. Yeah. More, more, uh, more primitive animals. And so there is some element where I agree with you. I think for AI systems to have something like consciousness, they have to fear their mortality. Exactly. And I think that's, if you do it then, you don't, you, you can't produce an AI whose behavior you can control. I mean, when you have kids. Yeah. You, you can't control it. their behavior. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, that's the, that's the trade-off. You give life to an anarchist. I yeah. mean, I, like yeah. one of my favorite instances in my family life is a, a, one of my, fa my, one of my well, I've got, I like all my nurses and, and nephews, but one's got a real quirk to her. And I was standing over her cot when she was literally like about six months old and she was gurgling away to herself. And her father uh, wagged his finger and said, stop making that noise. And this little six-month-old kid goes, zuh, 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 zuh. and I said, boy, you're uh -huh. going to have Issues with that one, mate. Yeah, and, and an she, anarchist was born. <laughs> yeah, and so you can't control this life you give no. birth to, and that's, and I that's think, a, the threat of AI. terrifying and exciting. It is, 
And I think we should take that risk at some stage. But I think to do it, we've got to actually let artificial intelligence involve in an environment in which it fears its own death. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of beauty there, but it's there's also a lot of a fear. Lot, a lot of destruction that's possible. So you have to be extremely careful. But that's kind of the cutting edge at which we all often operate as a humanity. Mm. Uh, let me ask you for advice. Can you give advice to young people in high school and college? Uh, maybe they're interested in economics. Maybe they uh, have other career ideas. What advice would you give them about a career they can have that they can be proud of or a life they can be proud of? Mainly in a career, I say don't do an economics degree. <laughs> okay. I say if, if, if there's, you. There's a, there's a little book. Econ uh, Comics. Uh, econ Comics, taking the con out of economics. Um, so they should start with that and then say screw it to an a, economics degree. Yeah, because what, what you learn is an obsolete technology. Learning economics at a university is like learning Ptolemaic astronomy. Mm. Okay, Earth-centric, equilibrium, um, you know, epicycles being added to make your models fit the data. So it's not that economics is not a discipline worth deeply studying, it's that the university education around economics- Is so bad. Is bad. Yeah, so I'd say learn system dynamics. Do a course in system dynamics, which you can apply in any field, and then apply what you learn out of system dynamics to the issues of economics, if that's what interests you. So get a sort of base engineering yeah, education. a base engineering education. Uh, that is far better than doing an economics degree. In terms of life, I mean, my life is pretty chaotic in many, many ways. My friend, friends and family will tell me that every opportunity. Uh, but the thing is, I, I once had a, this, I'll tell you an example of a, of a really funny incident that occurred to me because I led this student revolt at Sydney University, as I mentioned, when I was yeah. 20 years old. This is great. And then in my, I think about 28 or so, I went to a restaurant one night and I found a bunch of guys, all guys, who'd done accounting at the university but also been part of the student revolt. So they hadn't seen me for about a decade and they said, what have you been doing, Steve? And I talked about what I'd done. So I'd been a school teacher for a while. I then worked in overseas aid. Uh, I was doing computer programming at the time and I'd forgotten what else I was doing at that point. So I explained it to all of them. And they were at a Bucks night, one of them having a wedding you know, coming up the next week. And uh, one of them said, I wish I'd done that. And there was silence around the table that was obviously silent agreement. And I looked at them and said, hang on, guys, look at the downside of my life. You know, like, like I, I, you've all, you're getting married. I don't have a girlfriend right now. Um, you've all got secure jobs. I'm unemployed. Okay. Uh, I don't, you own a house. I haven't even got a car. You know, look at the downside of my life. And the bloke who was the kingpin of that group, a very innovative bunch of guys in the student revolt. So he said, Steve, we would still all rather have done what you have done. And they did accounting because it was safe. Yeah. You always get a job. As an, they were bored shitless. Wait, did you have a sense that the chaos you're always jumping into was dangerous or was it just the pull, pull of it that... I, I simply couldn't not do it. Yeah, there was part of me that I, I couldn't swallow this economic stuff. Once I was exposed to why it was so wrong, then I was on a on a crusade to make it right, and that's been part of my nature all through my life. I don't know why. So it wasn't that I made a choice to do it; is that I couldn't be true to myself 
without doing it. And I find a lot of people get caught in life where they're doing it because it works for some financial or other reason, but they're not being true to themselves. And as, as messy as my life is, as much shit I've got myself caught up in, and there's a lot of that in my personal and financial life right now, which is a pain in the ass, um, I would rather have had that nature than not. You would rather take the pain in the ass yep. than not. Yep, yep, Um, Let me ask a dark question. Mm -hmm. What's the darkest place you've ever gone to in your mind? So in all that roller coaster of life, mm. have there been periods where it's been really I've tough? been I've had to cope with depression in the last five years since I started re reading Neoclassical Economists on Climate Change. Okay. Sorry to come back to that one. So the, that's where my wife's going to come into this story. So I was reading Richard Toll, a paper from two thousand and nine called The Economics of Climate Change, Journal of Economic Perspectives, I think. And I read this section where he says that one of the ways they tried to uh, calibrate what climate change was due is they assumed that the relationship between GDP and temperature over space would apply over time as well. Yes. And I read that and thought that is so fucking stupid because all it's saying is that if there's a 10 degree temperature difference between New York and Florida and a 20% difference in income, then a 10 degree increase in temperature will cause GDP by four by 20%. It is so insanely stupid. So when, when that read that line, I just did this. I just, <laughs> you know, I was in shock at how stupid it was. My wife, who's Thai yeah. and brings in treats for me all day, walks into the room and says, and she speaks in a staccato English and says to me, why, why are you like this? And I said, I'm just doing this work on climate change. And she interrupts me and says, oh, why you do that stuff? Um, nobody's interested in climate change. You can't do anything to change it. If we die, we die. And that's that perfect, very perfect Buddhist grounding, you know, and I thought, well, I can't argue with her again, yeah. um, you know, so that sort of stopped me on the depression. But that's the darkest point when I looked at it and I thought that this arrogance, this stupidity, this humbug in The Economists meant that we were potentially jeopardizing the lives of billions of people and Christ knows how many other life forms. And the, having that knowledge is the most depressing experience of my life. That ideas simple models combined with arrogance yeah. can lead to the potential destruction of human civilization. Yeah. That was a very heavy, and then your wife came in with- uh, And broke me out of it. Nature uh, nature wins in the end. Yeah, and that's- and sort of accept the flow of life. You should you really enjoy that book, The Earth of Odds, because it's got that same beautiful sense to it. Life will survive whatever we do. I mean. They talk about the people. I was actually talking with a good mate of mine, an ex-geologist, and he's now a professor of economics. And he said, as a geologist, he really hated people talking about the Anthropocene epoch. And I said, well, it's not. It shouldn't be the Anthropocene epoch. It'll be the Anthropocene event, because an epoch is millions of years and you know, it'd be a huge period of of life on the planet. And we might be snuffed out in ten thousand years of human civilization. And that's not much slower than the meteors wiping out the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs lasted for a long time after that event. So we're we're like we'd just be a layer in the in the in the surface of the planet with plastics and strange metals like that at some point. So we're just an eat, but life will abide. Life will survive us. But there's so much life we're going to take down with us in this whole period. 
and there's so many of our own lives we're going to terminate for no good reason. I'm looking at this uh, Richard Tall character. I'll definitely have to look at some of his papers. It does look like, boy, is he oversimplifying and do a lot of Oh, people. my God. Check his one on the answer on, on how good it'll be to lose Amok. That That's said, good... I'm going to uh, approach all of these topics with humility, and I would like to have some conversations if people can recommend. Um, my default position is always with a scientist, but even above that, my default position is with those who are humble versus those who are arrogant. Yeah. This, this idea that because you're a quote unquote expert, you deserve to have arrogance is a silly idea to me. Again, going to the the broader view of life on earth, Yep. nature. Nature is the only one that gets to be arrogant and it doesn't need, it, it chooses not to. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let me ask you about love. What role does love play in this whole thing? What mm. did, did Karl Marx have a model for that? Oh, Marx was and, madly in love with Jenny von Westhalen uh, and wrote love poetry to her long before he wrote Das Kapital. Uh, and he was infatuated with her. He ended up also impregnating his uh, his uh, housekeeper. So there's a Karl, there's a son of Karl Marx who was the son of the um, housekeeper, not the Jenny. There are numerous daughters. So, so, so he was a... Uh, uh, he had a complicated view of love. Oh yeah, um, so, uh, there's a dialectic on love there. He had an ide ide idealistic view with with Jenny, and like he was rejected because he wasn't uh, not by Jenny. She was madly in love with him as well. So it was a real passionate love affair from the very outset. Uh, but then, of course, you have children. Lots of them die. There's a huge amount of tragedy in his life as well. He and Jenny were forced out of uh, uh, Chelsea by a cholera epidemic. My vision for London back in the eighteen fifties and sixties was was Calcutta in the in the nineteen seventies. That's really what life was like. So there's a lot of hardship in his life as well, and he was always poor. Um, so you know, only Ingalls kept him alive financially. Uh, he applied for one job outside of um, of um, uh, he never got an academic job. He was pushed out of Prussia as a newspaper author, but he also. Um, uh, he applied for a job as a clerk in the British railway system. Was turned down because they couldn't read his handwriting. So <laughs> I think I'm a bit similar there. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot of love and passion. But in general, what do you think is the role of love in the human condition? It's vital. It's um, I mean that that feeling of passionate um, desire and respect for somebody else. And there's perverted forms of love as well, so I'll, I'll leave that out. But somebody having a, a really a, a deep bond which goes beyond uh, just sexual attraction. Like I've had that four or five times in my life with different women at different times, and I've stuffed up the most important one very early on. Um, and but it, that feeling is incredible. Yeah. And uh, to, you you couldn't have life worth living without that. So it's an essential part of who we are. But what we have to do is to transfer it, not just to the rest of our species, but to all the species. And that's, I think, what's, what's vital. And how do we maintain that over generations? And I think that, that that idea that we can actually hang on to that general sense of respect and not lose it again, because the amount of life we've terminated on this planet, uh, the, the warlike side of humanity, that is too much of a defining feature of our species. It's the opposite of love, it's hate. 
but it's pleasure in inflicting pain on others. When you see people killing others in a warlike environment, they're enjoying themselves. Okay, uh, it's rarely sometimes it's self-defense, but there's when you when you've talked spoken to people who've been involved in combat and been involved in riots and said when you see somebody rioting, bashing people up, they're enjoying themselves. It's not anger they're feeling; it's pleasure. Yeah, there's a dark aspect to human nature. Very dark, that, but there's also the capacity to uh, to rise above that. And I think, like I put us on a spectrum between chimpanzees at one extreme and bonobos at the other. Yeah. We're too close to the chimpanzees. Yeah. You know? And bonobos are just having fun, having lots of sex. Every time they do anything, they fuck first and do the work later and then fuck afterwards to celebrate. You know, <laughs> Fuck first, ask questions later. <laughs> it's like that uh, Scent of a Woman, one of my favorite films, where Al Pacino gives advice to a cat. He says, when in doubt, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Good life advice for a cat, especially. Mm. Um, we mentioned that death seems to be maybe fundamental to uh, creating a conscious AI. All right. Do you think about your own death? Do you, um, are you afraid of it? Um, I'm afraid of going through it. Um, I'm not the, the other side, huh? You're not afraid of being on the other side. I don't think there is another side. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic. I'm atheist when pressed and agnostic. The one thing that I think I can understand why religion exists is that the whole thing that something exists is itself a dilemma. You, know, you have to take on faith that reality exists, whether it's a simulation or actual reality, it exists. And that itself can't be explained in any scientific manner. I mean, you yeah. can talk about anti-protons and protons and the sun being zero and so on, but why did it even happen in the first place? So there's part you simply have to take on faith. Um, so there was darkness before. We don't now, know. And there's darkness after. Yeah, and I don't know if we're going to be alive on the other side of that darkness. I think individually, no. But the, the way you can live on is by what you do to human consciousness. And how do you hope people remember you? Um, as someone who managed to integrate uh, economics with an appreciation for life. Well, I have to say... Uh, as a bit of a callback, you're one deadly bastard. <laughs> it's a huge honor that you would come down and talk to me. You're a brilliant person. You're a hilarious person. The, the humility shines through. The brilliance shines through. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Lex, for spending for the, this time. You you do the same for humanity. I mean, when you when I saw that email from you, my eyes popped out of my head. Yeah. Okay. Well, you should hold your judgment. I got to show you the sex dungeon I have. You'll, you'll well, I'm completely waiting change. for an invitation. <laughs> I'll send my wife over. Awesome. Can't wait. All right. Okay, mate. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Steve Keen. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now let me leave you with some words from Karl Marx. To be radical is to grasp things at their root. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.